0: Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for checking out our episode on Clive Barker's Lord of Illusions. Before we get going on the movie itself, I do want to mention a nonprofit organization, which would be the Evelyn Swierzynski Foundation. We talk more about the foundation with our special guest later in the episode, but currently Evie's Holiday Book Drive is ongoing, which is benefiting the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles, and that is open until December the 5th. You can find more details on that, and you can donate by visiting the website, which is teameviefoundation.com. Which is T E A M E V I E F O U N D A T I O N dot com. Thank you again for checking out both the book drive and listening to this episode. And if you ever wondered why we never had a Noir Vember themed episode of Scary Stuff, well, we do now. Hello, 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 and welcome to a very special episode of the Scary Stuff Podcast. This is Eric Dellinger, joined by co-host Nick Leamy. Hey, everybody, how
1: you doing tonight? And Jacob Jones Goldstein. Hey, I'm just a podcaster who wanted to become a god and change my mind. Look, I like the line, I wanted to incorporate it somewhere. It's either here or the sign-off. This is what you get. Fuck you.
0: (laughs) I say, what a humble line for you, and then you came around at the end and got your other Lord of Illusions on. Hey, fuck you, all right? Fuck you, all right.
2: <laughs> oh. Yes,
0: this is for folks probably know from seeing the episode title, but yeah, this is our November episode or November special. Yeah! Third time's the charm. We've been meaning to do this every year since we started. <laughs> we Keep trying. <laughs> so it was like, all right, this first year, maybe Lord of Illusions. Second year, maybe Lord of Illusions.
1: Finally, third year. We we got it. We're doing Lord I'm of Illusions so happy as a because... November special. See, Eric says that much nicer than it happens. The first year is like, well, maybe we do that. In second year, it's maybe this is like, fuck you both. We're doing Lord of Illusions. <laughs> clear your calendars. I will come to your house and beat you until you watch this movie. I respect it. Oh, look, it worked. It's a good call. We're here. <laughs> <laughs> we, we learn to not argue. When Eric lays down the law, the law gets laid down. None of you are worthy.
0: I mean, Nate, none of you are
2: th- Only Dwayne is worthy. <laughs> I, I have always loved this movie. It has always been one of my favorites, and it was a great opportunity for me to rewatch it and introduce it to my wife, so I'm
1: pleased as shit. I'm always excited to watch everything that we, we do for this podcast, because even if I don't like it, it's going to be fun to talk about. Absolutely. And knowing we had Dwayne coming on for this was great, because I loved his writing. So.
0: Yeah, we couldn't ask for a better guest in general, but for particularly for noir vember, yeah, D- yeah, Dwayne's a phenomenal crime writer and phenomenal writer in general. We're going to be talking about his other work later. But yeah, we'll, we'll be getting into the review shortly. Uh, one thing I'll mention just real quick, speaking of pod guests, is since we're we're going to be talking, this is our first Clyde Barker work on the pod. And in too long, I'll toss it out real quick. And I, I put it away. But my teacup tonight, I was using the Lord Fox design that was done by Erica Henderson. So it's based on Clyde Barker's novel, Sacrament. But anyone who's a fan of Clyde Barker's novel, Sacrament, Erica has a lot of amazing pieces, but in particular, she has this really fabulous design of Lord Fox, and she has a Threadless page so you can get it on, a mug, a shirt, a print, whatever you want to do. We've got her Return to Living Dead prints, her house prints, the thing, a bunch of stuff. But Erica's work's phenomenal, so go check out her Threadless page, ericafails.threadless.com. I always want to mention our previous podcast stuff, especially since we're doing Barker, I wanted to mention that. But yeah, this is exciting. Yeah, I can't wait. Well, let's get into it. All right. For our first Noir Noirvember special, I am delighted to introduce our next guest in audio. He's worked on the Audible original, The Guilty, with James Patterson. In prose, he has a stack of stuff I have next to me, including The Wheelman, Severance Package, Canary, Revolver, the Charlie Hardy series. In comics, he's worked for both of the big two. He's written Birds of Prey, *Werewolf by Night, Cable. For Dark Horse, he wrote X. He wrote Judge Dredd. He wrote a fabulous crime mini called Breakneck. But to me, above all else, he's the man who, during the Harbinger Wars crossover, wrote the scene where Bloodshot eats a cow in Bloodshot number 12. So I'm delighted to have on the pod Dwayne Swierzynski. Yay! Wow.
3: <laughs> Welcome. That cow, that's a, I went on my on my tombstone, the cow. That's a claim to fame. So thank you very much. Uh, I'm so <laughs> very happy to be here with you guys. I really appreciate it.
0: Oh, thank you so much for doing this. How are you?
3: I'm good. Very good. Yeah. Any chance to you know, revisit Clive Barker and his world is a-okay with me. So I'm happy to be here.
0: Heck yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was so excited to get you on for this particular movie. This is our first time doing you know one of Clive Barker's works on the pod. And you had tweeted before stuff related to Lord of Illusions or The Last Illusion of the short story. So I, I knew that you had a fondness for the short story. And then right before us recording this... On Clive Barker's birthday, you tweeted out the image of you and Clive together <laughs> at Rutgers. So I said, oh, this is perfect. Yeah. 91
3: That was one of the best nights of my young life, honestly. it was. Um, I've met Clive three times. Um, oh, wow. That was the – yeah, we – well, it, it, the other two were kind of dorky. But, I mean, the first time, <laughs> I was a freshman in college, and I happened to hear in the radio, the college radio station, hey, Clive Barker's downtown, Walden Books and Chestnut Street in Philadelphia, wherever it was. So I totally cut class. I'm like, fuck this. I'm going downtown. And I meet Clive Barker. So it was his <laughs> great and secret show tour. Oh, wow. And like, there was, there was no one there. It was like 11 AM and I, I, I thought it'd be a huge line. I thought it'd be like, you know, pinhead, you know, cosplayers, but no, it was just, it was like basically two other people and me and it was the best thing ever. He was so, he's always so polite and sweet and thoughtful. But then, you know, a few years later, a friend from the college paper happened to be working for Rutgers and said, Hey, I know, you know, you're a big Clive Barker fan. He's giving a speech here. That was during the Imagica tour. And do you want to come by and maybe, you know, say hi afterward? And like, uh, again, yes, no brainer. <laughs> and as it turned out, you know, Clive offered, hey, do you want to, you know, do an interview after the lecture? And I was, of course, you know, fuck yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we went somewhere. It was, it was outside of Camden, New Jersey. And I was following with my friend Susie and the kind of the, the Clive's press guy. The plan was to meet at a diner. So we followed him and, you know, kind of basically followed the car through the wilds of Camden, New Jersey. And a cop pulled us over. Now, I'm freaking out, like, no, you can you don't understand. <laughs> <That's Clive. laughs> I'm, I'm holding my book up. I'm like, I saw my life, life. It's like, I was like, no, I can't miss this opportunity for a speeding ticket. Good Lord. We <laughs> showed the book. We showed the sign book. He saw my tears. So I think he was like, okay, let us go. And we somehow found this diner and Clive spent an hour and a half with us just talking to these two nobody college kids. It was amazing. That's incredible. I, I always remember that honestly is like, you know, they say never meet your heroes, but I say meet your heroes because sometimes they're amazing. Mm. And that was such a great thing that, you know, I, I tell me a big lesson like, you know, if you're lucky enough to be a writer for a living, don't be a douche to people. <laughs> be as kind <laughs> as you can, you know, and be as cool as you can because that, that was a big night for me. That was truly inspirational. So That's lovely. That was my uh, meeting Clive Barker story when I was a young 19-year-old idiot. Oh, that's
1: fabulous. My, my wife has a, a similar story. She was a big fan of the book Warm Bodies by Isaac Marion. Oh, and yeah. he was doing a book signing in Baltimore, so she drove. To, we we live, you know, up in northern Delaware, so it's a bit of a hike. She drove down to meet him. She was the only one who showed, so they went out to dinner. Wow! Oh wow. So She got to <laughs> hang out and have a nice evening chatting with Isaac Marion.
3: That's the best.
1: So yeah, and it's you know one of her most special memories. So yeah, I can I can understand that's pretty neat.
3: It's part depressing. I mean, in a weird way, it's depressing because like, oh god, the poor author only had one person show up. But then again, that can be awesome, you know, if you yeah. hang with that person. So that's kind of wonderful.
1: I honestly, most of my experiences meeting writers, you know, my heroes have all been pretty positive. Maybe it's something about writers that are, you know, they're all in a room by themselves for so long. then when you get around people, they're like, yeah, I'm not going to blow this.
3: (laughs) There's so much truth to that. You're not kidding. Like I I go to like once in a while, a mystery writers convention, and we're all people write about gruesome death, serial killers, all kinds of nasty, you know, blackmail plots nicest group of fucking people ever i'm not kidding they're all just all nice absolutely well adjusted you know just like really just like saw the earth like what is this we must exercise all of our demons you know (laughs) out on the page i guess but uh yeah so weird
2: it's funny i went to this horror fest uh every year for a while there and they had some of the actors and producers after the fact And I just came out and said, I hear that you guys are like, you know, just the sweetest people on the earth when you're making these horror movies. They're like, oh, yeah, we're lovely. (laughs) Talking about like, you know, hanging out and, you know, just partying with their corpse dummies and making out with themselves. (laughs) It's it's so weird and lovely.
3: It is true. Like most of us are like in a room by ourselves all day and like any chance to talk to actual human beings is like, oh, my God, this is great. (laughs) This is wonderful.
1: That's really neat with Clive Barker, though. He, I've heard. You know, you know i've heard good things like you know that but i've heard similar stories about people's interactions with him all being pretty positive
3: yeah you know it is really i mean i've heard outside of my own experience that he really does whoever he engages with he listens to you and kind of locks in and kind of really it's, it's not even fake it's more like he really is truly curious about yeah. what you think of his work what you think about your life i mean he really is just a, a warm engaging guy which is kind of cool
1: and then he watched some of his films and i'm like huh
3: I wonder if he was thinking about killing me the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, some of the stuff in there, I mean, I got, I first started reading him when I was 15 and I was introduced to concepts and ideas. I probably shouldn't have been at that age, you know, <laughs> so, but it's kind of wonderful when, you know, something be that cool.
0: Yeah, I, I've,
3: I've seen a lot of interviews
0: with him, never had the pleasure of meeting him, but seeing interviews, he, he always seems super cool. His interviews are always interesting. Yeah. Listen to his film commentaries, which are great. I was just listening to his one for the movie we're doing tonight right before we started recording. On a similar note, I will mention, for anyone who hasn't listened to it, if you're a Clyde Barker fan and you haven't heard the commentary for the adaptation of Midnight Meat Train, <laughs> please go seek out that commentary track okay okay it is clive barker and the director Yuhei katamura and they're in the room together and clive barker essentially says at the onset all right you can't say how the studio fucked with this movie but i can say whatever i want proceeds <laughs> to talk about how the movie got fucked with
3: wow that's great, <laughs> that's really great. i'm
0: so excited to do midnight meat train at some
3: point Oh man yeah he's also actually been Clive's always been really I think sort of open with his you know readers about like nightbreed Nightbreed was nightbreed. kind of a bad experience he was talking to Fang, every interviews in fangoria where he was just really honest about hey, this is what happens you know he doesn't like he doesn't villainize the studio he understands why they do what they do mm-hmm. but it doesn't mean it's right either it means it's like sort of it's still shitty it's, <laughs> yeah. but it's, he he understands how the machinery works and that's it was very useful you know and very you learn a lot from that rather than you know I think some people most often want to gloss over that kind of thing, you know, not to ruin future work for themselves. Like you don't want to alienate your, you know, your executives, but he's always been kind of like this, a straight shooter that way, which is nice. It's really
0: fascinating. So by the time this comes out, we'll have released our Halloween episode on something wicked this way comes, which will be, yeah. you know, interesting. Cause that's a case where, you know, you have a prose writer who's then doing the screenplay for their own work, but it's done by a different director. In that case, it's Jack Clayton. But in this case, Barker's works are so fascinating because it's a prose writer doing the screenplay for his own works, directing them. And like you said, he has this practicality about you know the realities of the system. He's very blunt about what he thinks is bullshit yeah. and is stupid, <laughs> which comes out in Lord of Illusions, because I'm sure we'll talk about the theatrical cut versus the director's cut version of this, because they are pretty notable. Yeah, But yeah, it's really fascinating in that way for someone to really have their feet in both realms both in the writing realm and the film realm be so successful at it and so cognizant of the practical realities of all
3: of them mm-hmm. yeah he is a role model that way as far as you know how to um you know i, I felt like i kind of was watching his career evolve as uh, being a fan and every kind of new like challenge is like oh here's how movies get screwed up or here's how you know <laughs> how, how a tv show gets goofy you know or whatever it is he's always been kind of being pretty open about that sort of thing and that's always useful if you're pursuing a creative career it's good to know that yeah, even even folks like Clive Barker have, have headaches and nightmares, and mm-hmm. and I've learned you know since being here in LA, it's like in, in some ways the bigger you are, the more they try to take you down. Mm-hmm. I don't have that problem, thankfully. <laughs> no one knows who I am, but that's okay. <laughs> but it's like but it really, I've had friends who like have done big movies, and it feels like the bigger you are, they truly really do try to mess with you, and, and it's bizarre. I think God, how does that happen? It's you know it's sort of an ego battle after a certain point. Well, alpha dog battles, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
1: that's because you can't tell the money guys anything.
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's part of that. And again, I I do try to understand everyone's perspective. Like everyone has a reason why they do what they do. They have, they have an agenda, but sometimes the creative agenda gets lost in the you know other the financials and everything else, the practicalities that don't do much to help your project, but have to be you know endured. <laughs> mm-hmm. But. Anyway, we're getting a little dark here. Sorry, oh, okay. a, little, a little bit depressing. <laughs> yeah, this is like, yeah. it's bound to happen eventually. So, <laughs> so o-
1: along those how, how could we possibly get dark on a
2: Clive Barker movie? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> da, da, da. Mm.
1: But <laughs> One of the, the interesting things to me that's kind of along those lines is that he made this movie based on his own short story. He did the screenplay, mm-hmm. he directed it, and it's so different. Oh, yeah. And it's it's fascinating because normally you, know, you get a short story, and it's like, oh, they really changed everything for the movies. But it was really, him, he did it. He's like, I'm gonna make this based on this. I mean, there's certainly there's crossover, you know, particularly the names and stuff. But it's they're remarkably different stories, and I yeah. hadn't, I did not expect that, knowing that I knew he did the adaption himself. I assumed they'd be pretty close. And I'm reading the story, and I'm like, Am I reading the right story? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I'm gonna write
0: it's, this this is like the right names. Did I start with uh, the the Lost Souls one instead?
2: It's yeah. funny yeah. you mentioned that actually, because like it, there are like little things that he could have included from the short story, he didn't. Like for example the tattoo that Bacula wears in the movie is only there because he pushed for it. Right. Like, he did his own research on the character and read up on it, and he's like, oh, yeah, we should definitely include the tattoo. And like, oh, okay. It's like, it's it was interesting that he was paring back that level of detail when it was all available to him. I, I That's a little touch that I absolutely adore and I'm glad they included.
3: <laughs> yeah, that, it's, it's kind of incredible. I mean, I, I, it's funny, uh, just yesterday... A book came out called Clive Barker's Dark Worlds. Have you guys seen this book? It's sort of a, a career retrospective.
0: I saw someone tweet about it, but yeah, I haven't ordered it. Is it
3: just, just it? got it? Oh, <laughs> my, like, oh
0: my gosh! Yeah. It's, a, it's a mammoth
3: thing. Yeah, it's mammoth. It's wonderful. It's full of his you know, work and you know film stills. and It kind of covers his entire career. And I, of course, I read the Lord of Illusions part of it, and I just learned that this is all new to me. That actually, Clive started working on a, a Harry Demore story, I'm uh, sorry, script in like '87, like right after Hellraiser. Oh wow! He, he wanted to do a, a Harry Demore trilogy. And he did a few versions of a script called, it was called The First Adventure, and then later it was called The Great Unknown. And then he kind of put it aside. You know, he had other things, I think Nightbreed popped up probably. Later, someone else, a studio, hired another writer to get a crack at it. Clive wasn't too crazy about it. And then revisited it in like the early 90s, and that's when we introduced all the stuff that is not in the story, as you mentioned. It's like the idea of Nix and the cult. That's all... This all new, and I hmm. I just have to think that after a while adapting your own stuff, you get bored with like you know, just just sticking to the story. You want to expand. You want to like go and create new things. So I think that's what, kind of what happened. He was like, okay, where can we take this? So what uh, I guess Lord of Illusions was supposed to be a movie two in this Harry Demore trilogy that never happened or hasn't happened yet. Wow. So yeah, that was that, was, that blew me away. That's off in this new book, Dark Worlds. I was really stunned by that. Like, wow.
2: In my opinion, the best authors are the ones who are world builders, and yeah. that you know that opportunity to expand that world in, with this movie, I could easily see him latching onto that.
1: Well, I guess the the short story is in the same world as Hellraiser, I, and I I don't know anything about Hellraiser, but I guess the the reference to hell he makes is how they I, look. I just haven't seen it. We'll watch <laughs> it. We're, I'm waiting now to do it for Go the pod. Home. Can you hear Nick leaning towards his camera?
2: <laughs> I am judging you.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Judge. All right. So Jake, why, why the hell is it, is it fear holding you back? Or is it like All right, too, too so wet, too bloody, too? Probably. But <laughs>
1: <laughs> when I was a kid, and I don't know which hell, I think it's the first one. When I was a kid, my parents were divorced and I would go to my dad's on weekends. And he remarried and I had an older sister. And she would be, you know, out. And we, we slept in the living room at their house, which was where the TV was. And she would occasionally come home late after everybody was asleep and we would hang out. And one night she came home and she put on a movie and she put on Hellraiser and we didn't know what it was. and I I was probably, I want to say 10 at the time.
3: Oh, that's young. Yeah.
1: It was some scene with a, like a bloody mattress and some other awful stuff happening. So the first one. Yeah. And you know, this was late at night. You know, my dad finally came out and said, what are you doing? Turn the TV off. Never looked, you know, and I just spent the rest of that night going, well, that was horrible. (laughs) And for whatever reason, it, it, and I've talked many times in the pod that I was an incredibly wussy kid, like about any kind of horror stuff. Right. You know, like Scooby-Doo was a bit much for me sometimes. <laughs> and and I, you know, I saw this like 15 minutes at Hellraiser and it was just it like it laid into me that this was the movie to avoid. And I've just never <laughs> wow. gone to see it. Now, I'm at a point where I would very much like to watch it. And I I would like this, especially the new one. Yeah. Uh, since we, you know, we had the screenwriters on and had such a lovely time with them. And. You know, I want to support him, but it's like, I feel like now I should wait until we actually do in a Hellraiser episode so I can see it with the fresh eyes when we get around to that, but... If we do the whole series before
0: we get to the remake, which we, knowing us, we probably will. In order, in complete. <laughs> oh, wow, you're going to be so mad at us! Jake. You're going to be so mad at us by the end. <laughs> they they go on an interesting tangent. <laughs> yeah, my roommate is a big Hellraiser fan, so earlier this year we watched them all the way through. So wow, yeah, those latter ones are pretty fresh in my mind.
1: Well, also, the, you know, the Hellraiser has the direct community connection, so like I'm all I've already got that one lined up, and I'm excited. Since they talk about Hellraiser on community. So,
3: yeah, see that? Yeah. In
1: fact, let me do that now. So, every episode I do a community connection. Right. Where I connect in some tangential, lucid way that, that pisses off Nick, uh, <laughs> whatever we're watching to community. And you know, I can usually find some, some pretty close ones. But this one, all right, I went through Daniel Von Bargen, who I love. He played Nick's. and he's also of Super Troopers fame. So every time (laughs) I saw him as the magician, all I could hear in my head was, I like you from Super (laughs) So anyway, he played Sheriff Cooley in Oh Brother Where Art Thou alongside John Goodman, who played Big Dan Teague. Uh, Oh my gosh! That's right.
0: He's the sweet summer rain Speak! Oh my gosh! (laughs) I looked at his, (laughs) I completely forgot that was him. Oh, my God. Oh, that should have been so obvious.
1: And John Goodman, of course, played Vice Dean Laybourne in six episodes of Community, including his last episode where he alludes to being in a ska band. So, of course, I <laughs> love the character. Uh, and, and I went with this one, part because I wanted to talk about Daniel Von Bargen as much as possible, but also because I was going to make a man of constant sorrow joke. And then I did this all this before I started the movie, and then I watched the movie, and so I'm like, shit, I liked it. Now I can't make that joke. <laughs> See?
2: <laughs> I, I approve of this connection. That's a good connection. That's pretty good.
1: I assumed I, I wouldn't like it because it's you know, an early 90s horror movie that Nick loves, and that's usually the kiss <laughs> of death with me.
0: But we had two bits of insurance in this one going in. Like yes, we did. Oh, insane. yeah.
1: When I found out it was a prequel to Deep Rising. Oh, shit. It
0: was <laughs> great. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Daniel Von Bargen and Famke Kajansen. And Kevin yep. O'Connor. So, Kevin O'Connor can go either way because, as you mentioned way back in our episode three, yeah. he reminds you of um, Kevin well, O'Connor. Well, there's a, there's a famous
1: basketball it. writer, Kevin O'Connor, who's uh, a, a yeah. noted Celtics guy. And in the two years since we recorded that episode, he has become much more broad and i mean he's still a bit of a weirdo but he he's he, this year he he all but picked the Sixers, so he's as of the recording of this he is on my okay list so i enjoyed kevin o'connor in this instead of rooting for him to die like i did in deep rising
3: gotcha. <laughs> good,
2: good.
3: wow you, you watch movies through a very interesting prism yep my friend. <laughs> yes he
2: does <laughs> it can be a little infuriating sometimes
3: <laughs> there's a lot going on there i love it a lot going it's, on a lot of yeah. pieces
2: that, that was a much
1: nicer way of saying that than the way Nick usually says it. So I appreciate that.
2: <laughs> All I'm saying is, is that you're the kind of guy who can watch a film and whether or not they included a single song used once in it determines when you hate it or love it. <laughs>
0: wow.
1: It doesn't necessarily determine if I love it or hate it, but it doesn't hurt. Yeah, (laughs) like you throw a Boston song and I know what you did last summer then well of course it's a winner I mean you know they play the Boston (laughs) everything else is tangential I'm just going to be happy because of that like it gives what it does is it gives me something to hold on to even if I don't like the movies like here's this this one all right I've mentioned this probably a thousand times what have I done there's a Beatle Bailey strip (laughs) from way back in the day and it's the cook is talking to Sarge and they're talking about how much he likes the chaplain because the chaplain always has something nice to say, no matter what happens. And then, they, you know, they're talking and the chaplain comes up and he says, hey, Cook, I just want to stop by and say congratulations on the ketchup. And this has almost <laughs> been a life philosophy for me. Like, you know, just find the ketchup and everything. And I'm really bad at it. And I'm just awful and, and overly critiqued. I mean, Nick is actually more of the congratulations on the ketchup guy. But I try. Yeah, Jake's more of the quarters guy. Uh, oh. <laughs> I did it once in high school, and I realized it was terrible. What did you do, Jake? All right. This was all right. This was. A... <laughs> oh,
0: my God.
3: What happened? You got to tell us now. We're
0: telling the quarter story before the Keith Giffen story.
1: Oh, my God. <laughs> all right. Now, remember, this was back in the early 90s where two bucks wasn't as bad a tip as it sounds like. But the idea was you go to a restaurant and you put eight quarters on the table. And every time something bad happens, you take away a quarter. Oh, wow. Jesus Christ, man. We we did it once as a goof, and obviously we, we tipped them you know, regularly, but it didn't matter at that point. We were just punk asshole kids. I was a miserable teenager. <laughs> <laughs> but Nick is now accusing me of looking for flaws in movies, is what he's saying there.
3: So a- as, you, as you remove quarters, would you wave it in front of the server like, ha-ha, you've lost this quarter, my friend? No,
1: nope, you would just hope that they would notice that there's only six left and wonder what they did. Really? Wow, okay. Like I said, When I was a freshman in high school, I was—I don't understand how I even have friends from back then.
2: The The way you describe it, though, it felt like you would like literally take a quarter off, look him in the eyes as you swallowed it. You know? Yeah, yeah.
1: I wouldn't put it past me.
0: (laughs) We're going to talk about some other stuff before we get into the film, real quick, just because now it's come up. So I read the script for this, and there's a handful of scenes that are different than the finished film. Some of which are in the deleted scenes on the Blu-ray. Right. This is one I'm going to read real quick, just because of how it came up. This is a scene that occurs right after Harry has found Swan, but before Butterfield shows up and attacks Valentin and kidnaps him and Dorothea. Got it. So this is Swan and and Harry as they're leaving Swan's, you know, the little derelict like hovel that he's holed up in. Exterior liquor store, late afternoon. A small, garishly lit liquor store. Harry's car pulls into the lot. Swan gets out, his disguise back on. Heads into the store. Harry, agitated and impatient, follows him. Interior liquor store, late afternoon. Swan is at the cashier's desk with a bottle of cheap brandy. Swan, is this the best brandy you got? Cashier, if that's what's on the shelves. Swan produces a $1,000 bill out of thin air. Swan, can you change a 1000 for me? Cashier, amazed. You're shitting me. Harry, can we go? Swan starts to cough. A quarter falls from his mouth. (laughs) Harry, (laughs) Ah, jeez. Swan, will that do? No. Swan coughs again, puts his hand to his mouth. A deluge of quarters runs between his fingers. Swan, that better? The cashier gapes. End of scene. Wow. So if it had been Jake he would have sucked all the quarters back up. So totally it like, <laughs> tight, oh my, oh, he would have just gone to the take a penny leave a penny shit and just like Kirby just <laughs> sucked all <this. laughs>
3: That's where the quarters went. I get it now. It's somehow popped up in this deleted scene. Okay. <laughs> no, that's, no, that's
1: where all the Now every time I criticize a film Nick's going to be thinking about me eating quarters. Yeah. Jeez. There's our next t-shirt. 8 quarters and <laughs>
0: We had previous podcast Danny Lore co wrote a series with V. Ayala called Quarter Killer, which is available on Comixology. Everyone should go read
1: it. Nice pull. Nice. I mean, we, we need another because I've, I've got my Fraggle Rock Money t shirt oh, on. Oh, God so. damn it. <laughs> <laughs> wow.
0: Yeah. So to circle back to, to the movie? Yeah. Well, even before that. So, Dwayne, you mentioned that you saw Clive while he was on a, a tour for Great and Secret Show. Right. Had you read all the Harry Demore stuff before seeing Lord of Illusions, or what was the?
3: Oh yeah, it's well yeah. I read the. I mean, I read the story. You know, the the last illusion, and I read uh, Great and Secret Show, which had a, a Harry Demore cameo. At the time, though, I hadn't read Everville yet, and apparently Harry has a bigger role in Everville, the second book in that series. But beyond that, yeah, that was my only experience, as I recall, with Mister Demore. Oh, I, actually, i want I'm gonna be a weird trivia. This is bizarre, but in the the last illusion. They mentioned this big sort of nightmarish experience in Brooklyn on Wyckoff Street in Brooklyn. You know, this, this extra gone wrong, this is big for the first case.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Late 90s, I lived on Wyckoff Street in Brooklyn. <laughs>
4: Oh, no. oh, nice! Yeah, that's
3: awesome. So, if I ever, you know, cross paths with Clive again, I, I want to know what block was that? Was it my house? Was it where I was? <laughs> like, i was just dying to know. Like, Did you do
1: a lot of exorcisms back then? Was it just a thing in Brooklyn?
3: Not as many as you think. You know, it was. I mean, uh,
1: Brooklyn has gotten more gentrified now, but it back has. in the early '90s, it was a different place.
3: It was rougher back then. Yeah, you definitely encountered more demons, you know, and more possessions for sure. Um, no, it was just a weird, weird little, little you know bizarre. As I reread, I'm like, oh yeah, Wyckoff Street. That's right. I lived in that block, and I'm pretty sure I saw Harry Demore, you know bowling and demons at some point
2: i would love for you to <laughs> talk to him and you go hey you know i live there he goes oh i know
3: <laughs> exactly <laughs>
2: ah! <laughs> your connection
0: to Clyde barker goes well ahead of 1991
3: <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> yeah and, and as you guys know of course uh, harry demore went on to he appears in the scarlet gospels the big you know pinhead novel
0: yeah i haven't read it um in fact i hadn't read the last illusion until prepping for this oh, okay i was always curious about it because I mean, aside from seeing the film a few years ago and, and enjoying it, a couple of years ago, there was a tweet from S.A. Cosby, uh, Ooh, a yeah. fabulous writer. Since we're in the middle of November, folks are looking for another book to read. Razorblade Tears by S.A. Cosby is
3: terrific. It's awesome.
0: Yeah. But he had tweeted out. I, I don't know what the horror movie remake du jour was, but he had tweeted out at one point. He said, well, we're talking about remaking stuff. Can we get Mike Flanagan to remake The Last Illusion?" No. which inadvertently well-timed with me wearing my in Flanagan we trust shirt <laughs> yeah but so I'd always been curious about it but I'd also been curious when the Scarlet Gospels came out so I always meant to read all of those so I could actually get around to reading Scarlet Gospels I did also start reading just spinning out of the new Hellraiser I in prepping for this I read the first couple issues of the boom comics run uh which I guess Clive co-wrote with I believe it's Christopher Monfett and That's I guess right. at, some, at some point
3: Harry Moore shows
0: up in there
2: nice
3: yeah, I mean, I actually, in Clive and comics, too, that, it's funny, Clive actually got me into comics in a weird way. I mean, I read as a kid, like, you know, Spider-Man, Batman, I love that stuff. But as a, quote, adult, I was, you know, it's 17, 18, they were doing those uh, Tapping the Vein comics, you know, adaptations mm. of his Books of Blood stories, which were wonderful. Uh, and that just, like, that turned me on, oh, is this what comics can do now? I'm all about this. That really got me into that, the world again after a few years of trying to be cool in front of girls and not looking comics, you know. Uh, so that, <laughs> that was great. And then the Hellraiser, um, you know, the anthology series was wonderful. I mean, I just thought it was a great way of like, here's a cool way to explore the world of Pinhead and the Cenobites with this cool anthology of different stories, and I thought it was kind of wonderful. And then, yeah, over the years, there's been so much, so much stuff, so many comics, and the Boom, actually, the Boom series. I don't think I, I, I haven't read that one yet. I need to dip into that. They've done some interesting things. I've heard. Yeah, I just read the first
0: couple, and and it seemed like it might be, from the snippets I read about where it goes, it seemed like it was going to be pretty interesting. Um, Leonardo is on the art, so the art's pretty nifty. Yeah. That kind of ties in with something with the film that I thought was interesting. The Clive Barker comic connection is one of the things I find so interesting about Clive's work in movies is how instantly engaging and how it so quickly feels like what you're watching is part of a broader universe. Oh, yeah. And it's so funny because just with, with all the little visual touches, Lord of Illusions does it quick, where the movie's instantly arresting, where you have this opening sequence of all these totemic figurines in the desert, you know, these death's head figurines in the script they just referred to as idols. You have. You know the, the character of Butterfield with his distinct look. You have the, the house with its apocalyptic artwork on this derelict it's building,
2: visually stunning.
0: You have your big you know, evil villain in sweatpants, and all, <laughs> but all the stuff that's the, my big takeaway when I first saw Lord of Illusions was by the time I got to the scene where Harry walks in on Quade's death, and we see the older Butterfield, and we also see Miller. It was just, yeah. it, it just, it felt so comic booky in terms of how visually distinct and unique so many aspects of it were and and how it really felt like there was just a broader universe going on nightbreed also absolutely has that yeah but yeah so it's it's just interesting so i I really want to go back and and see his comic work we've talked before about possibly doing an episode around some of the razor line stuff so
3: oh that's great yeah it's funny on that note it's like I, i do love how certain elements kind of carry through all of his movies like he loves sort of weird gadgets like in lord of illusions well, sorry, Hellraiser, you yeah, have the puzzle box, of course, right? Yep. Cool, you know, in Nightbreed, I always think about those thumb knives, that yes. one character. Yes. Like, yes, Tears off his own face, you know, it's crazy. And then, in, oh, in Lord of Illusions, of course, it's the, the face mask, the gear. I love on, it. On Nyx, yeah. it's like, what, who thinks of this stuff? and,
2: and not God, just I love the mask. it. <laughs> <laughs> like,
3: you, you have the mask and the tools to remove
2: it, even. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, I like, love yeah. it all. <laughs> like, where do you buy that?
3: Home Depot? Saw that? Like, wait, 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 what is that? Like, wow. Like, that's amazing. Yeah.
0: <laughs> the mask design in this is so, like, it looks very much like an S&M, like, Cyberman from Doctor Who, the whole totally. mystique of mm-hmm. it. A little bit. But apparently, it's, and again, this is another filmmaker I'm woefully underseen on, but apparently that mask is an homage to Mario Bava's, um, Not Bay of Blood. What's the other one that he did? Oh, gosh. Uh,
1: um,
0: from Beyond? No, 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 no. What was it? From 1960. It was released as Mask of Satan, but the original title was something else.
1: Black Sunday?
0: Black Sunday. That's Black it. Sunday. Yep. There you go. Thank the the you. opening <laughs> of Black Sunday. I I watched the opening of it after I read this bit with Clive Barker in an interview. The opening of it features spoilers for Black Sunday. I guess. Yeah. Features yeah. A, a woman who's being burned at the stake as a witch, and at the end of it, they hammer this big iron mask
3: on, which has That's this right.
0: demonic visage. So apparently, it was a bit of a nod to that.
3: Yeah, Joe Bob Briggs showed that recently. It was like I I thought that. Oh, wow, this is very Clive Barkerian. You know, before. Oh wow! Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah, incredible.
2: There's also another uh, Giallo reference in the film, or an homage, if you will. When they're at the end, like, staring out into the desert, it's a reference to the final shot from Fulci's The Beyond.
3: Oh, yeah. Ah, uh-huh, yeah. uh-huh. Actually, did you guys catch the reference to one of Clive's own stories within Lord of Illusions? Mm. He actually has a big, this big scene where, um, in one of the books of Blood stories, is called Skins of the Fathers. You know, put on Sin of the Fathers. Mm. And it's basically about this kid whose mother is human, his father is sort of this Lovecraftian space god thing that comes down and, you know, and sires this child. At the end, basically, long story short, at the end of it, there are these sort of angry townspeople trying to, you know, fight the monsters. And the monsters kind of make the ground um, sort of unstable. And all the townspeople sink into it.
4: Ah, just like the end of the Illusion. Wow. sort of trap. Like, I
3: remember, it's so, uh, in the comic version of it, you see just a disembodied mouth sticking out of the, uh, the ground. It's horrifying. It's like, wow, imagine like you're, frozen this in the earth all you have is your mouth exposed and it's just like ugh, oh creepy. Wow. so he definitely borrowed from himself i think in that in that it's just a great visual treat huh.
2: speaking <laughs> of lovecraft actually i feel the uh damore character is sort of influenced from hp lovecraft as well i might be going on a limb here but hear me out sure <laughs> so, <laughs> so harry damore like so Amor is in the name; it's almost like love. So yeah. Harry de Love, it is. H D Love, A-H- It's like almost is like kind of a a change. Uh, took H. B. Lovecraft and made Harry de More out of it. Could be, yeah. Is where I got that. Yeah, I might be making this up completely, but it oh, feels no. like it's
3: connected. Well, Clive definitely. Uh, the love is why he named Harry de that. It was like his because for him, I read this in, in Dark Worlds that basically he sees love as your way of connecting with a higher version of yourself a different reality so yeah. it was very much intentional and it's also a great to me it's a great noir name you know it's, oh, it's yeah. just sort of that, that weird yeah. you know that harry's a very salt of the earth like demore is more exotic Like philip is a working class name Marlowe sounds yeah. uh, like marlo it's, I don't know, it's that weird blend i'm, I'm sure he, i know he's very aware of those classic you know sam spade you know it's this weird knightly you know elegant names but they're salt of the earth you know working class dudes mixing mm-hmm. up their fists yep you know? absolutely yeah <laughs> that's
1: kind of cool he's he's a neat character like i enjoyed obviously i enjoyed him in the film but i enjoyed him in the short story too and it makes me want to kind of explore
2: that a little further he feels like a perfect noir protagonist he really just fits right into it where he's kind of like out of his league but gritty and not going to give up
3: yeah
1: and i'm always so partial to that kind of character Mm -hmm.
2: yeah it's funny because
0: barker talks about how for the film version at least part of why he wanted to use the the noir tropes is because he wanted essentially the movie to function kind of like a gateway horror movie. So even if you weren't a fan of like his previous work, you would have this noir spine running through this. You would have something to latch onto. So he wanted the movie to have, you know, a very, very distinct and very shocking opening sequence and then go into this, you know, noir sequence and kind of noir plot beats to hold it through. But it's funny, like how, how quickly and how hard it slams into noir, because as soon as you get done, the prologue rainy streets,
3: Blinds, yep.
0: Shoulder <laughs> holster is just knocking them all out back to back.
3: Can't Budweiser.
2: yep. <laughs> this film actually only fails be a noir, in my opinion, due to one real reason, and that's because Dorothea survives in the end.
3: Yeah. <laughs> you know, no, honestly, honestly, yeah. noir is like usually the big definition of a lot of noir purists say you can't have a happy ending in nope. noir. You know nope. that to me is it's a, it's a pretty good definition. I mean, it's funny. I thought about this a lot with this, him blending horror and noir. And it's people mistake two genres for each other. You know, you know, cosmic horror where that sort mm-hmm. of Lovecraftian thing was like, and there's also noir. To me, the difference is, is sort of pretty important. It's like cosmic horror is the universe is indifferent to you. Like you're a fly speck, you're fly crap, you're nothing. Mm-hmm. Whereas noir universe knows about you and it's out to get you. Yep. It wants to, yep. it wants to <laughs> fuck with you. <laughs> and that to me is like key distinction. It's like, you know, when the universe is out to get you, it's like, and it'll, it'll win in the end. In the end, if the universe is messing with you, you're not going to prevail. You're going to lose everything you want in life.
2: I feel in Noir, <laughs> you're allowed to save the world, but you're not allowed to come out on top. Yes. <laughs> yes. You you are less for having gone through this.
1: <laughs> well, this this is the power of Famke Jansen. Because, yeah. like... <laughs> You know, if, if they had killed her in this movie, this would be a whole different podcast. I'll just throw that ah! out there. Really? <laughs> I'd, have, I'd have been mad. I'd have been mad at Eric. I'd have been mad at Nick for making me watch it. Wow. Okay.
3: Damn.
1: He has opinions. <laughs> I wouldn't do that to you. Too. <laughs> and it might not be good opinions, but Family Chance is awesome. <laughs> no, no.
3: That is. I, I, it is one. The one to me, the one oddly sour note. Like, oh, they're they're okay. They live. Oh, really? No, they have to lose everything. That's yeah, the whole point yeah. of noir, you know. And, but that's just me.
1: Well, at the end, the villain tells you he just kind of doesn't want it. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just to skip ahead, his last line is maybe my favorite moment in the entire film. Yeah. I, it, it's just a brilliant closing line, I thought, for him. But Remind us? I'm just a man who wanted to become a god and then change his mind. Yeah. So good. Yep.
0: All of that stuff is is pretty much was added after the initial script draft, or at least like that chunk of dialogue is pretty much not there where he's kind of stalking Dorothea and he's rattling off lines while Swan and Harry hatch a plan, which apparently he is in this case his is Nix you know, utter cosmic malevolence who can be defeated with basically a double axe handle off the top rope where you just have to <laughs> kind of get above him a little bit. Yeah, yeah. It was one of the sticking points of the film, which is like, obviously there are, there's elements of the movie where you could see like, visual effects and whatnot, where you could feel things were, compromised in the original vision was obviously something bigger sure but that one in particular it was like that can't have been the original plan it was just i mean obviously it's a callback with swan levitating harry is a callback to swan and all the sure, other yeah bits of levitation I said, but there had to be something grander than you know basically- poke your eyes out
2: Harry comes <laughs> up to him and basically just kind of, you
0: know, goes and you know messes with his face. And see, then,
2: that's, it's doubly problematic because he's in like the state of transforming into something that doesn't give a shit about eyes or brains. Clearly, you know, it's right, like it's it's right. going beyond humanity. And he's just like eh, poke and then dumps him
3: <laughs> in, the, in the well.
0: <laughs> well, it, yeah. So that did originally. Quick script note: that did originally make more sense. So in in the sequence where. Nix is first revived, and his cultists are around him, and he says, You know, will you suffer on to me? Whatever. Right. And we see the third eye emerge, and then the cloud comes out, and there's the bit, like Dwayne mentioned, that it harkens back to another story where everyone sinks into the ground. Right. In the movie, that's executed by he basically his forehead forms this storm cloud, and then it rains, and softening the ground, and everyone sinks. The rain element was added in the original script. You know, he has the kind of this. A ray of darkness emerged from his forehead if you look at the sequence where everyone goes into the magic castle and they find the the cachet of tim vigil artwork basically mm. of, of all the you know the documents there's yeah. one where he has like a, a ray of darkness coming out of his forehead which is mm. kind of how it's described in the script but it basically he just had the ground liquefied there wasn't the rain element it was just all of a sudden the ground turned to liquid people plunged in and got frozen there then in the finale, while he's approaching Dorothea and he's nearing the lip of the cavern, Harry goes to Swan, who's, and, and Swan's all you know messed up and basically broken-bodied at that point from Nix hitting him with the dark energy. But yeah. Harry says, that trick that Nix did with the ground, can you do it? And Swan says, I think. And then Swan sticks his fingers in the ground, liquefies the ground, uh. and then all the corpses of the cultists who are already there are now freed and they basically just kind of float and surge towards Nix right. and kind of end up forcing him over the edge into you know into the
2: chasm and then the grave retakes him, right?
3: Oh, yeah, I wonder if it's a budgetary problem, because I know with Hellraiser, yes. not to not to spoil it for Jake, you know, the whole last encounter with the engineer is the big the big bad monster at the end of it. Like it just didn't look great and Clive was never happy with it. And based on the interviews I've read, it just they ran out of money to execute it in that way it deserves. Yeah. I wonder if the same can be here. Whereas money ran out they need a quick way to dispatch Nix, and that's what they came up with. And it wasn't one he had in mind.
0: Yeah, it, it seems that way. That, you know, that, cause, like you said, structurally, you know, it's it. even now in the finished film, it's a callback to a levitation bit. But in, in yeah. the written version, it's a callback to a couple things. It's a repetition of, of a magic trick Nix has done, which is also established earlier in the script with talking about people being able to replicate, you know, other people's magics. There's the scene with the Vincent Chavelli character, which I'm sure we're going to touch on oh, God, earlier yeah. and stuff yeah. like I that. I love him. He's awesome. But any qualms i had though with that particular element of the climax are quickly just washed out of my memory by the subsequent sequence of nicks falling down the the chasm <laughs> where we find out that basically the sound you know of the, the, the beast makes at the end of the world is the same as tom the cat when he gets nailed in the foot with a <laughs> it, it is straight up the tom yell from tom and jerry ah! uh, <laughs> and <laughs> and the shot no! is, is so legitimately funny of him you know, rocketing towards the center of the earth, essentially. Yeah. And I was wondering, I was like, again, how is this written? And one other script excerpt I'll read because I just, I, just, I love the way it's written. So here's how, after Nyx goes over, here's how the descent is written. Interior, the pit. This is verbatim from the script. What we are about to witness is the longest fall to his death by any villain in the history of cinema. <laughs> That's awesome. Nix is falling through rock, <laughs> still screaming. He crashes against a layer of stone, which his body smashes to smithereens. As he falls, interior Nix's house, passageway, night. Dorothea, is it finished? Harry, I think so. Then the script, no, it's not. <laughs> Nix keeps falling, <laughs> breaking through another layer of rock as he descends deeper and deeper into the earth. Wow. And now there's a hint of fiery light below. He's approaching magma. <laughs> and they just sort of all the way down. So it's written with that same level of humor. It's like, I
3: love it. Oh, this is going to be fucking great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> that's wonderful.
0: Yeah. I always love the cheeky sides they get in scripts. That's what makes, especially
3: we're in Justin Benson scripts with the pods. That's <laughs> half of what makes them so much fun. <laughs> it is fun. It, it's funny. You know, writing scripts is like, you're basically talking to an audience, a small audience, a director, the actor is like, you can have, it's fun. And it's not like the finished product. It's a blueprint for a finished product. Mm-hmm. So, entertain yourself and like, yeah, have those a size. And that's also any kind of shorthand you can use to get people to visualize what you're doing. That's a victory. So like you said, the longest plunge of a villain ever. I see that. That's awesome. I, we know what we're shooting for. That's like shorthand yeah. rather than spending a paragraph describing every, you know, 10 meters what's happening. You know, it's, right. it's kind of great. So I admire that. You guys, you guys mentioned uh, the Magic Castle. Oh. It's funny before I, I watched this before moving to L.A., now I drive by the Magic Castle like, every week, at least once a week. I drive oh. by the Magic Castle. My first, I swear, my first three months here in L.A., I met not one magician but two. I'm not kidding. I happened to run into two actual working magicians. Oh wow! Like, what what is this? This is a Clive Barker movie. Why are these magicians like popping up everywhere? <laughs> it's, it's a big deal, and I kind of, I kind of now look at it I'm like us. Oh, it's it's hilarious seeing that you know the Magic Castle and what a big deal it is. And those scenes inside are kind of wonderful. I read that, or I think in Clive's commentary, he talks about how he really had to treat respectfully to gain access to shoot inside the castle which is yeah. kind of kind of great mm-hmm. another thing that jumped out at me about you know the, the LA-ness of it all was when I first watched this before I visited the city for the first time I always thought LA is a city of gorgeous graveyards with palm trees like just mm. gorgeous like if you want to die die in LA because they'll put you under <laughs> a palm tree that's
1: there's a whole movie about that wasn't there live and die kind in great.
3: LA yeah but very few palm trees <laughs> a lot of Willem Dafoe but yeah. anyway I, I just kind of, he's a yeah. kind
1: of palm tree <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, you know it's just Clyde was sort of newish to la at that point in making the movie Next, a few years he lived here but all this kind of things that kind of you come from i'm coming from the east come from philadelphia so i come from the east coast city you come from like he came from you know liverpool london i don't know some things jump out at you as the absurdity of the city you know like that the palm trees and the graveyards the magic castle being this being a thing all the excess and that to me is kind of a wonderful part of this movie it's a very la movie um the pantages the whole you know This big magic show and almost like, you know, Siegfried and Roy on crack, you know, (laughs) crazy death defying uh, spectacles. But it's funny, rewatching it for this, I kind of was really struck by how much L.A. is in it. And it's a a love letter in a weird way to the city.
0: Yeah, it is. In the original version of the script, there's actually no New York at all. The the sequence of introducing him and the sequence where he introduces Loomis. Uh, was apparently added later. The original introduction of Loomis. Harry is is him checking in at the hotel. He has this whole sequence where he's spelling out his name for the receptionist and, and has all this exchange. Loomis does have a cameo uh, where it's before Harry goes to Swan's magic act. He's on the phone with Loomis, uh. and Loomis is trying to coax him into getting back to New York. I've got a job for you, and Harry's like, you know, I can't going back and forth and saying, you know, I got to stay out here. I got to finish this job. And Loomis says, all right, I just got one question for you. Who is she?
3: Because no. he, <laughs> he can tell,
0: obviously, if he's staying out there, he's staying out there for a girl. And he said, all right, goodbye, Loomis. So, so there was a brief Loomis scene, but it's placement was shifting.
3: And I you guys know from the original story, of the uh, last illusion, that was all in New York. That was set in New York. Yeah. So that was, yeah. you know, and I think even the first versions of the script were New York based. And then later he thought, no, let's make this LA. You know, we, we have desert, we have weirdos, we have excess, you know, it's, the city can be intoxicating that way, and kind of draw you in <laughs> to uh, its spell.
1: It definitely that was a, the movie felt very much like you said, like an LA movie, and the short story felt very much like a New York short story. So it, it was, yeah, just at heart, yeah, very different vibes. Yeah, for sure. I, I think I, I, I think I like the movie more than the short story, if I'm being honest. Really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I enjoyed the short story, but the movie had a lot of stuff I like, and and right now, just now, found out that the magic castle is a real thing. Which I oh, didn't yeah. know. Oh, you know. Oh yeah! Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah! yeah! Now I have one more goal. Next time I'm in LA, I you know that's hell yeah. Like I think my favorite parts of this movie were the the magic castle scene.
3: Well, step one is you have to befriend a magician. I'm not kidding. You have to actually be invited by a member, so you can't just like sh- roll up there as a tourist. I, I yeah, would
1: gladly befriend every magician I could. Like if you have magician's <laughs> out in LA, listen to this. I am your pal. I won't try and pump you for secrets. I just want to see you do
3: card tricks. It's cool. I know. I know two of them, so I, I can hook you up, my friend. I can hook you up. <laughs> uh, yeah. We've got them in. <laughs> we do.
2: One of my favorite parts of the Magic Castle had to be when it's just said, "Magic is the oldest trick in the book." Around the ceiling, there. <laughs> I'm like, yes, That's great. I just the
1: one line. Nice accent. What is it, Brooklyn? Hey, fuck you, all right.
3: <laughs> yeah. Oh, a small bit of trivia. Actually, right next door, literally next door to the Magic Castle, is the hotel where Janis Joplin lost her life. Really? Yeah, it's a oh my big rock, rock and roll hotel. Like, God, who else was there? Alice Cooper. We first rolled into town. Stayed at this hotel. Like, it's a really, you know, this. Whole, it's, a, it's Franklin Avenue, so it's right behind parallel to Hollywood Boulevard. It's a great little corridor. Uh, at one point, it's a hotel or a rooming house, a block in the opposite direction, where Charlie Manson stayed for a few months. So it's everywhere you turn, it's like weirdos and rock and rollers and freaks and magicians, and it's it's kind of neat.
2: <laughs> we'll fit in just fine. Got it.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. You'll, you'll, just, you'll love it.
1: <laughs> Eventually, we're going to take a field trip as a podcast. You know, it'll be
3: good. I totally should.
1: It's coming. It's coming. No, I was really looking forward to Jake seeing the
0: Magic Castle scenes. So, and I had asked Jake going into this, I said, can, because Jake hadn't seen it. And I wanted Jake to see it the same way I did, which was actually seeing the theatrical cut first right. and then seeing the director's cut. Because I, I do think it's, this movie is a particularly interesting example of how yeah. just a few nice, quiet character beats. It really can is. add so much and actually end up making it feel like an even breezier watch. Oh yeah, I really like the director's cut. There's a lot more, but also, but the director's cut has quite possibly my favorite scene in the entire film, which is the the Walter Wilder scene with with. It, it's absolutely my favorite scene. I loved it. Yeah, I told Jake. I said literally once a month, at least at some point where someone says, you know, oh, I don't have something. I think, well,
3: you do now. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. it's a great scene. That also that cut scene is, is uh, what a loss. But also, yeah, I love, I love the scene where they catch up with the cultists like it's Philadelphia. At least the City of San Jose it's like that explains so much. Just wondering. The he,
0: montage. Yeah, I can't believe they cut that.
3: Why cut that? It was so why well, I, I read somewhere that It's
1: pretty violent. <laughs> it is.
2: Look, if all
1: the one scene is just like a stepfather
2: still and if the stepfather got away with it 10 years earlier. <laughs> no, okay so I watched this with my wife Hannah and she's been recently getting into horror. She'd avoided it for a long time and I finally have kind of just, you know, Broken through that wall, and now she's like, we, we binged Halloween, we binged a bunch of stuff, you know, it's we're getting there, it's great. Awesome. And we, we started to watch this, I said, okay, right off the bat, you're going to want to look away when the cultists are starting to come back. Because yeah. <laughs> I knew, I knew of, of the whole movie, that was going to be the single most disturbing part.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, Clive talks about, at one point, the head of the studio said, I'm not having any dead kids in my movie. And Clive says, okay. And then cut it and put it back in anyway. It's <laughs> like, 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 well, guess what it is now. Some of the Knicks stuff, too.
0: Like, the NPA told him to cut some of the blood from the Knicks. Like, even just a handful of frames from yeah. when, they're, when they're grafting the mask on. And Clive said, okay. And then put some of them back in. Lie to him. Exactly. <laughs> Clive Barker went to the Keith Giffen School of Filmmaking. <laughs> you can find our Lie
2: to Him t-shirt on
0: tpublic.com.
2: The, the fact that they... Drilled the mask into Nick's using blood. I thought was a brilliant choice. Oh, I, so good! Oh, it really rams home like the magical effect and the binding that's going into place here. Oh, the little touches make this movie.
3: Oh God, yeah, yeah, it is the attention that artistic detail. I mean, Clive is a fine artist. You know, he really pays yeah. attention to visuals so much. You know, of course, he's a natural director that way. All these these things stay with you, right? That's the beauty of this movies. Like you can equip it with plot points and everything else, but man. There are some images I will never forget from Hellraiser on, Nightbreed, mm-hmm. and this movie. It's truly wonderful. Um, but yeah, actually, going back to what you said about you know the director's cut versus the theatrical cut, I totally agree. Like, the director's cut is the way to go if you're going to watch this. Oh, yeah, yeah. And Clive makes the point in the commentary that the movie as released was like a horror movie with noir overtones. His cut was like equally a noir movie and a horror movie, a yep. hybrid, which I truly I love. I think it's kind of – he's so right and it's so – the real shame of it is there are so few movies who pull that off. And in fact, Angel Heart is like one of them I can think of. That kind of really blends, you know, the horror and noir because that's based on the novel Falling Angel by William Horsberg. Again, this it's one of my favorite novels. Actually, he does a great job of a 1950s private eye caught in this truly bizarre, satanic, you know, world. The movie is funny. It's relocated to New Orleans right? That's where it was the movie, but the novel's all in New York.
0: Oh, yeah. I, I read the novel years ago. Yeah, it's all New York. It's great. It. Have you read the sequel?
3: Not yet. I, I own it. Okay.
0: I, I got it, too. I, it came yeah. out, like, last year, and I picked yes. it up, but I haven't had a chance to read it yet. But, yeah, it's I I did read Fallen Angels. It, Angel Heart is probably going to be what we do for Noir November next year, because yeah. it's, it's pretty much always a, a coin toss, which is the big horror noirs we're going to do first. It's, like, it's either going to be Lord of Illusions or Angel Heart, although, funnily enough, in trying to poke around for you know stuff Clive Barker said in terms of referring to the the noir elements of the film and trying to find like interview bits where he talked about like I was trying to find like were there any particular noir movies that inspired him you know any you know noir iconic actors or something that he thought of in, in writing the character of Harry right. and I didn't dig too deep but the main quotes I found were were Clive Barker talking about noir but not for this movie uh-huh. he, he talked about the noir influence significantly I found a lot of quotes on it on a previous film he made called or that he wrote called Underworld right. also known as Transmutations
2: that's a trippy movie you've seen it okay yes I've seen it it's it's I, I had
0: to track it down <laughs> for but yeah. I did watch it before this and yeah it's it's that's an interesting watch you know?
3: <laughs> it's funny. I've always avoided because I, I know Clive himself has sort of uh, disowned it he wrote yes. the script and he, he wrote it and it just became something else and that, I think, actually inspired him to direct his own Hellraiser, basically. He was like, okay, I can do this. Like, if they can fuck up my stuff so badly, let me fuck it up. <laughs> let me just have a crack at it and at least have my vision there, you know, for good or ill. So, yep. that was kind of cool. But, yeah, that that and, and Rawhead Rex, he was not too yes. uh, happy about. It. Same
0: director on both. <laughs> George Pavlo did both, yeah. That's
3: right.
2: I stand firmly on my stance that Rawhead Rex would have actually been semi-decent if they hadn't, screwed up the makeup for it yeah. i mean it, it's basically a spirit of halloween mask throughout the whole thing <laughs> it's a, and that doesn't work <laughs> yeah
0: yeah it, it has yeah I, I don't think Rawhead rex is awful i think there's 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 parts of it that work jake i know is not going to hate it because that's the nice thing about clive barker movies is we, are you sure <laughs> no we we have insurance in both cases there's a lot he's gonna hate
3: is there a scab band there somewhere yeah <laughs> There is the sequence hurt.
0: of the family around the two-thirds mark where they're driving, where Head Rex attacks the family in the car. The kid is reading an issue of Secret Wars in the back seat. Oh, we're good. So, so we're good. <laughs> in fact, we were just talking to Daniel Krauss about how his first comic was Secret Wars number ten. I'd be curious if it is Secret Wars number ten. Wow. I remember it's, it's. It might be Secret Wars two. I can't remember, but it's definitely an issue of Secret Wars. See, I, I
3: need a checklist from Jake about things that will make a movie for him that I'll put in any movie I happen to work on. Just the insurance <laughs> value. Like, like, okay, Secret I guarantee Wars one good review Money, money boss tones awesome i'll just i'll put this shit in there just just to you know have at least one audience member who likes this thing all
1: right let me let me since we're talking about my dumb shit that i find (laughs) and and since you you watched it with hannah did you see the indigo girls poster
2: i missed it i'm sure she saw oh so
1: well you you gotta look it's a scene when demore is gonna go he's he gets it to the apartment of the tarot reader yeah And he parks outside. There's a bunch of handbills on there. And I was kind of looking at the handbills because, you know, again, as we've established this episode, I'm a little nuts. And I noticed one and it looked like the Indigo Girls and it was. So I, of course, spent some time figuring out when the concert was and where it was. And I couldn't get a set list. There wasn't a set list available, (laughs) but it was for the August 26, 27 show at the Universal Amphitheater in Universal City, California. Wow. which dates when they were filming this. So it was sometime after that because the handbill was, was kind of ripped down. But it was like Indigo Girls. Hey, I wonder if Nick is watching this with Hannah because she's, of course, a huge Indigo Girls fan. She is. That's a
3: deep cut. I like that. That's we cool. saw them in concert.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Man, me too. They're they're great. I just, I thought that was kind of fun. that was there. So, yeah.
3: Actually, speaking of noir references, that, that scene uh, where he visits the Tarot Car Reader, that building, that's in Venice. That's on Windward Avenue. Do you guys know what also was filmed there? One of the all-time great noirs, Touch of Evil really oh that was the
0: is that the street for that's the street of- that's All the right.
3: opening tracking shot you know in fact go there now there's a huge touch of evil mural along one one of the buildings okay, uh, nice. it was, yeah it was really it, it wasn't there at the time of filming but it's funny the things i saw as, as a you know in 95 like it, it went over my head watching again like oh my god that's venice i know where that is i can find that apartment you know and go up there and hopefully find Butterfield stepping some poor dude to death. You know?
1: <laughs> <laughs> so this scene had so much to kind of recommend it. Like, first of all, when he gets in the tussle with the, the toothy dude, Miller, when he knocks or he tries to knock him out, he hits him with a phrenology map yep. in the head. <laughs> yeah. And I just like, oh, I'm going to enjoy this movie because, you know, that just I just <laughs> thought that was great. Nice touch. But then when they reintroduce Butterfield, just his total, complete nonchalance, because when you last see him, it's like this is this dude's kind of crazy out here in the desert yeah and here he's got like he's got the norman osborne haircut and he's just kind of yeah very immediately chatty and it's like yeah hey how you doing don't mind me cutting up this dude you know like his pure malevolence in that scene is so engaging yep Yeah, yeah same like that was
0: the big scene that that really hooked me the first time watching it like everything is so striking like even even the the character of Miller, his henchman, who was just instantly just zero to sixty every time, just yeah. just always <laughs> flying. The scene where he gets knocked out the window, just the the image of Quaid with all these scalpels at yeah you know, plugged in him, and as Butterfield retreats, the Quaid's first thought is, "Hey, let me read your palm," and then, like all these like just quirky oblique things that are just so instantly intriguing in terms of how it handles the material. Also a lot, a, similar to that is a lot of the visual touches and elements that the movie you know, like doesn't go out of its way to explain that are just kind of obliquely incorporated. Nick mentioned Harry's back tattoo, which is yeah. never explained. It's just shown. Dorothea doesn't even comment on it. It's just there. There's the exorcism that predates the movie, which this movie handles similarly to the short story, where we don't find out like front to back what happened. We just get these oblique beats. It's particularly effective in the short story because they will just occasionally cross-reference yeah. some particularly awful thing that happened at some point during this incident. But
2: Hell, I like that the demon's still haunting his nightmares.
1: <laughs> yeah. 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 Of course, the most important unexplained thing in the film is the mandrel
0: yeah <laughs> yeah we we're talking all about the the effect stuff how you know they originally had a bit of a grander finale planned you know there's the cg effects with the origami man what's referred to in the script as the origami man which is interesting
1: oh that that first generation video toaster ass graphic man yeah. i used to work in a tv studio we could have done that and i saw that and I'm like <laughs> oh
0: i know how that was done yeah and all this so there's all this stuff was like uh they, which you know it's not overly detracting, but it's like, oh, you can see where compromise was made or something. They weren't able to achieve what they had. But Barker says on that commentary, yeah. he fought for the baboon budget. He did. He, <laughs> he said, I had to fight to get money for the baboon. But damn it, well, I did it. And then I
1: realized halfway through the film, you weren't getting any more mandrel. And it's like, come on, man. You
0: almost did. <laughs> the mandrel originally, you got a death scene for the mandrel. Because Whoa. originally when Swan goes into the well, I'm glad it wasn't in there. Before you seen, well, no, yeah, because... He sees a, a chair and he sees a robe and he thinks it's Nick sitting in the chair. And then it looks at, and it's the baboon wearing Nick's robe. Oh, nice. And he leaps at swan and gets shot. <laughs> okay,
3: that would have been all right So then. there was
0: originally a baboon jump scare.
3: You know, I've seen two connections here, actually, that jump out at me. With Butterfield and his henchmen, he'd fit in so well with Flea and the from Big Lebowski. Like, they're all they're all the same ah, kind of people, right? Yeah. <laughs> and cultists have a baboon. They have a ferret. The Nautilus have a ferret. So, oh so it's weird. I mean, if, you, if you're a creepy, you know, henchman uh, who, who doesn't need do anything, you'll have a baboon or a ferret or a marmoset, whatever it is. You're going to have <laughs> an animal friend who will be along with you. So I can totally see Butterfield hang with Flea and, you know, Peter Stromer and all of them. Yep. Things. I was say, between that and Daniel von Bargain, yeah, clearly the Coens must have seen this at some point. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah.
1: Peter Stromer could have pulled off that role, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally.
3: Oh god, yeah. I mean great.
1: But I, I just I, I found myself loving every Butterfield scene in this. He's really good.
3: Yeah. I mean, yeah. the,
0: the actor hasn't been in a ton, I don't think, from briefly looking at his IMDb. But I think he's no. really, really good. He's just like I said, the character is so is, is visually striking and his performance is so interesting and as Lee said, he has this relaxed demeanor about, you know, all this insidious stuff he's doing and, and torturing people and whatnot. Even the scene where he's torturing Valentin. You know, yeah. it was, it, his his delivery is so great. And he, and Miller, too, is interesting that you have like it, the first scene where you see Miller is basically just you know 90 seconds of. ah, And then <laughs> but then the second scene you have with Butterfield and Miller with that great, like, I guess, noirish shot of Butterfield silhouetted. So chill as he stands against the window and his silhouette is cast. But the whole scene there, Miller is just so calm and reserved. And, is, and again, like all the little nuance and interesting touches of the characters are just so much fun.
3: You know, in *Clive Barker*'s vi- villains, like think about *Hellraiser*. The main villain really, is, is Julia, a bored British mm-hmm. housewife. It's like that's yep. not the usual. *Nightbreed*. It's David Cronenberg as, <laughs> as a psychiatrist <laughs> with a weird mask. It's like, okay, that's unusual. That's really different. I, I, I like the choice of villains being so different because they're. You know, if you have a fascinating villain, if you have a stock character who just all menace and all you know, mustache twirling, who cares? I love a good villain that can be just like, oh, I, I actually watched the entire movie about this guy, this lady, you know. Absolutely.
2: Yeah, the
0: dedication to making everything visually distinct, and like you mentioned, probably taps into Clyde Barker's background and his own fondness for art since he, yeah. since he paints. But like Nightbreed, like you mentioned, is such a great example of that, whereas you know, most other studio films with a plot like that, you know, you would have kind of the core characters, but they would kind of be the visual anomalies where they're so visually distinct and everything yeah. else is relatively mundane. But then the Clyde Barker film, like you said, no, we're going to give David Cronenberg <laughs> this weird-ass mask. <laughs> Just,
3: yeah.
2: So everything has something about it to
0: make it visually distinct.
3: For sure. See,
2: now, there are two ways I like my films. I like the ones where they go on for like, you know, what feels like hours and hours talking about the histories of things and, and world building and all this. And I love those stories and being told those stories. And that's great. I also like, and this is harder, I admit, because a lot of times you feel like they're just cheating and, and not giving it to you, but if they can give you a world that feels so rich that you can't assume everything's going to be explained to you, yeah, and there are things just waiting there, you can fill in the blanks yourself, I love that. And I get that from the Miller character a lot, mm. because I almost feel like, you know, is he entirely human? <laughs> right. you know, it's, a deal. Yeah, I mean, he's clearly got a level of strength that's a little atypical to your standard individual. He's got these sharp kind of almost like demon teeth. He can take a goddamn fall. He's got like glass sticking out of him. He's like, that's uncomfortable. You know, it's like, yeah, you know, it's, yeah. Oh, you know, yeah. it's he's clearly not normal and they never once explain it. It's great. And I love <laughs> it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. And he, like you mentioned, he has the the glyph on his forehead you know that's kind of carved in which is there to serve a plot function later so that harry can recognize it when he's when he's going through the magic castle there was a little bit of dialogue between billy and harry that i kind of wish they had left in which is when they first break into the magic castle but before he sees the the buttons and he sees that sigil that he recognizes as they're kind of going through so here's how it's written this is a short excerpt says on the wall, plaster life masks in glass cases, the tools of the great magicians. Knives, keys, guns, wands, even an Iron Maiden. Billy is in awe. He wanders around wide-eyed while Harry scans the shelves. The dialogue runs as they investigate. Billy. I hear Mrs. Swan's quite a babe. Harry. You heard right. Billy. You ever been married? Harry. Yeah, she was killed in a car crash. The lawyer was driving. She was filing for divorce. Billy. Why? Harry. My life was too weird for her. Billy grinning i love weird (laughs) (laughs) wow that little beat again as far as the the billy harry dynamic i was like oh could you have left that in (laughs) that little like borderline flirtatious "I, i love weird beat also there was a postscript after they leave where in the finished film billy says are you coming as they're leaving harry's like yeah one minute and he takes his stuff and leaves there was a little button with them in the car park and they shake hands and billy's like you know Shaking his hand, and Harry says, Hey, man, thanks, Billy. And Billy says, Anytime, starts to walk away, and then stops and goes, Actually, no, this was enough. He's <laughs> like, he Oh, I wish we'd had those two Billy
1: Beats. That's great. A couple of things. I, I really enjoyed Billy in this, and I was surprised yes. that this was pretty much his only film.
2: Yeah. I think he's actually a magician, if I recall correctly. That's right. That's right. Yeah,
0: he's a um, magician buddy of Barker's, I think he mentions in the commentary.
1: The other thing is, so. Well, for the henchman with the teeth, I've already blanked on his name because I'm terrible at that. Uh, Miller. Miller. You wonder if he's supernatural, but I think most of his stuff could be explained with angel dust.
0: (laughs) Which is what they say in the film. The detective (laughs) says he must have been on something.
1: And and the other thing, Nick, you said the two things you most enjoy in films is is spending a lot of time on world building. And then also leaving some stuff to the imagination. Right? That sums up what you just said. Uh Uh-oh. Roughly? This feels like a trap. Oh, it is <laughs> because and I agree with you and I, I enjoy both of those things a lot, but that's the entirety of the legend of Boggy Creek. And yet you hated that <laughs> oh. Boggy Creek was not world building at all.
2: It's all world building. It's just not a world you enjoy. It's a swamp. It had one thing. It, it was a podunk town that had one interesting thing that they barely touched on and they
1: did poorly. There was a bunch of stories about this monster willed this wielding the world of this monster, but nothing, no, okay. Did you see the size of the Clive Barker book Dwayne brought out earlier? Oh, yeah. That it's,
0: was the it's... reference book for <laughs> Crab Trees <laughs> that they had on set. They need to consult Crab
2: Tree Lord. Like, all right, yes! consult the book. And if I gave a damn about mm. Crab Trees, then I'd love that movie. But no... It was about a goddamn monster they didn't spend a time on! Look, I just
1: know I'm not the only one swallowing quarters on this podcast. That's all I'm saying. Oh, (laughs) my God.
2: I'm allowed to have standards. (laughs) No, you're not. And you don't have them, so don't lie. (laughs) The Legend of Bog Creek was a really great nature video for that location. I gave it that. That was the (laughs) catch-up.
3: The world of crab trees. (laughs) I actually love Boggy Creek, but I, I'm not gonna get into a fight with you. I, 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 do, I do love that movie. I,
2: I wish <laughs> I had seen it as a child. I watched it this year.
3: Yeah, I did see. Actually, I saw it as part of Joe Bob Briggs' first like marathon. I was like, eh, that's okay. I saw it in the theater this past year. I was like, oh my god, this is great. I don't know what it was that the switch flip for me it was like. Oh, I get this now. I get the appeal. It's a whole little world that you get. It feels like reality. It's me. It's that a blur is reality for me. It's like oh. I'm actually believing these guys are, you know, experiencing these monster attacks. And that's Mm kind of cool. It worked on me. Uh, Almost like Blair Witch can work on you or be boring as hell.
2: That that broke me. All right. So the first time I saw Blair Witch, I saw it with a group of friends. It was stunning. Really enjoyed it. The end scene definitely broke me a little bit. I was like, oh, ooh. You know, and then so I saw it with three friends and one of them brought a friend of their own and we had to drop her off. And (laughs) so she lived just across the border in Maryland. So, Uh, we're driving from, you know, small town through suburbia, through suburbia. You hit the border, and it's like a light switch. Welcome to nothing but trees. And I was like, this was a terrible idea.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Might almost say it gets rural. Uh
2: Across the border,
1: yes. Across the border is rural. Sorry, we're just picking all the old fights tonight. (laughs) We
2: all like this
0: movie. Why are we... (laughs) We need each other.
1: (laughs) I, I really did. I, I love the hell out of Love film. it. Like I, I'm glad. That's good. I'm, I'm glad. so
0: glad you liked it. Like I, I honestly didn't think you would dislike it, but I was curious like where you would fall. Because I know you like Nightbreed. Yeah. In fact, that's kind of how I ended up seeing this, was I had seen... I think I had seen Hellraiser, but barely remembered it. But it was one of the first times I was actually hanging out with you and Jen. Was looking at your DVD collection and Nightbreed was in there, and I'd mentioned I'd never oh, seen it. Jen's a huge and, Nightbreed. And you fan. said, "Oh, Jen's a huge fan of Nightbreed," and Jen came out and said, "Oh yeah, borrow it, borrow it." So I watched Nightbreed and loved it, and I said, "All right, well, I've seen two or three. I guess I'll watch Lord of Illusions next." Yeah. And so yeah, that was how I I got into it.
2: More so than Lord of. Okay, so Lord of Illusions director's cut does make a big difference and is clearly the better film. But like Nightbreed, it's a completely different film. <laughs> it's a totally yeah. different experience oh, between yeah. the, what was released and the director's cut. And it's so worth the director's cut.
1: I should watch those again. I I mean, I enjoyed Nightbreed. I would say, I, I mean, it's and it's almost certainly recency bias that I enjoyed this more on my first viewing than I enjoyed Nightbreed on this, my first viewing. I mean, I, you know, I like maybe Noir a little bit more. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I got to go back and revisit that. And I guess I gotta watch Hellraiser too.
3: So. You do because I think you know. What Clive does really well to me. Is like he kind of matches together two really different genres. Like in Hellraiser, it's like almost like an English ghost story, at a haunted house, but also it's a, a really twisted, kinky version of the postman always rings twice. It's like a weird, like yeah. you know, <laughs> yes, it's really nice, you know. And then you add the cinnabon, it's just crazy. Yep. Whereas Nightbreed, it's like to me, it's a weird, perverse take on a slasher movie. Then you have like almost like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory of like, you know, Midian. It's like this whole weird world that yeah. our young hero has to figure out and it's menacing but not it's like, it's just yeah. I don't know. It's it's like that fantasy element that kind of really works well and same with Lore of Illusions, it's a great war horror. That's it's a these you always must put these different tastes, which I love in mm-hmm. a lot of people don't respond well to those. <laughs> they don't want, you know, peanut butter and chocolate. They want they want you know, either one of the either. Peanut butter or chocolate, not both. And i I love Reese's cups, so that's yeah.
1: Those were the kind of horror movies I could, because like, I, I mentioned I was not a horror fan when I was younger. I, I was, you know, a big old wuss about it. But the <laughs> ones that I could deal with were the ones that, that did just that, that mixed things together. So it wasn't, you know, because in my head, everything was, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street. And, and you know, but then you see something like Nightbreed and I'm like, well, this is horror, but also fantasy and a lot of other stuff. And I, so I always kind of glommed onto those movies as a way to get into horror. And it took eventually Shaun of the Dead is really what finally clicked it over for me but yeah but yeah but this if I had seen this when I was younger it might have might have broken me sooner into horror because this is the exact kind of film hybrid story that that really and it still does click with me
3: that's perfect
0: because that's what what Barker wanted yeah he wanted it to be a gateway film labels matter and
1: you talk about it being a gateway I was at to dinner tonight with a bunch of friends and one of them is very notably anti-horror you know he makes you know similar objections this is our, our friend Pat friend of the pod and I mentioned, you know, we were recording this, and I goes, oh, Lord of the Illusions, I love that. And I almost fell out of my chair. <laughs> wow. Yeah. He, you know, and, and we talked about it. He's like, oh, it's not too gory. And I'm like, a dude gets sliced up with like a thousand scalpels and then reads tarot. There's more in
2: here. And he's like, yeah, but it's not too bad. <laughs> to be fair, the the director's cut is significantly more intense. <laughs> sure, but I, I think it was the same
1: thing for him. Is that It was that combination of noir and horror that made the horror palpable for him. Yes. And but yeah, Pat like, in this shocked me. It's not gore per se, but
0: like all the stuff with Nyx after he's resurrected. The whole resurrection sequel where he's just so goddamn like just gooey sticky moist? and gross. Yes. <laughs> he's constantly moist. You got this camera POV going inside his chest and you find out. That the interior of Nick's is a Shinya Sukamoto movie. Like, it just looks like a <laughs> Tetsu
1: movie, Iron Man in there. It's like, well, the exterior at that point looks like an Oreo cookie mascot gone wrong. He's got the, you know, the, the <laughs> cookie crumble all over him. And, you know, the white face.
3: Yeah, oh yeah. When I was a young Clive Barker fan, I remember I was a big horror fan because that was my badge of honor. Like, I love horror. I'm a hardcore horror guy. I mean, you know, I'm a skinny bender, Like, like the, the, but I love horror. And, and Clive and used people say, no, I. I love horror, but I, I more write something called fantastique. Like, he sort of mm-hmm. talked about it in terms of like a blend of fantasy and horror and mystery and all kinds of things. And I always thought, ah, uh, don't dance around it. You're a horror guy. But later, as I, you know, grew up, I realized, no, he's right. And what actually appeals to me about the horror genre. And I think, you know, I'm sure you guys are asked all the time, like, why do you watch that stuff? Do you want to be scared all the time and be grossed the time. up, right? But to me, my answer is, it really isn't. I, I don't go to horror movies for the fear, be afraid. I don't go for the gross out. I really don't. I go for the imagination. I can really go for like, yep. show me something crazy. Show me something cool. And I don't care if you explain something it. New. Yeah. Something new and bold. And like, that to me, it, honestly, is the appeal. So every time I go to, you know, the new Beverly or anywhere to see a, a new to me horror movie, I'm like, okay, don't show me the, in a millionth, you know, throat cut. I want to see something you come up with that will just blow me away. That to me is the joy of that, the genre. So.
1: Absolutely. That's why I'm always watching these indie found footage films. Cause it's like, you've no budget, yeah. just, do something interesting and clever and I will love you forever. And eventually make my friends on my podcast, watch Mr. Jones. So, you know, it's... <laughs> but that's, that's exactly it. Just do something interesting. And in horror, because it's generally low budget, not, you know, they never have very high budget. They're always so forced into a box to be creative and to do something interesting. That's the best. And when it works, it works so hard. Yeah. And it's just, you know, it really sticks with you. And then, yeah, and this movie does that for me. Absolutely, I
3: mean, I think of like you know uh, Argento with um, Deep Red. There's yes. sequences like make, make no sense. Like that walking toy doll thing—that's that's the creepiest thing in the movie. Yep. they never explain it. Nope, no idea why it's there. Don't care. I love it. It's a fever dream moment. It's like, oh, this is why I'm here to see this bizarre shit that I don't <laughs> only see. And I'm a plot guy. Believe me, I'm a huge plot guy. I write mystery novels, so I'm big on plot. And my first critique of any movie is usually like, "Oh, they fucked that up." They didn't, you know, not I'm Mr. Plot guy, but I love it when a, a movie reaches me in a way that's just purely visual, and it doesn't have to be explained. Like the baboon, the mandrill—that was just yeah. a great touch. It's like the freak me out. I hate multicolored monkeys. They just—they freak me out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, what is that? Why is your nose blue? Anyway, but it, but yeah, there it's uh that that's the joy of this genre. That I think a lot of you know civilians, like a better word, don't get like why do you watch that stuff. Because I like to see new shit. That's the honest answer.
2: Hey, without, since we're not actively analyzing Deep Red, I won't give away the spoiler. But it is one of my favorites because, how do I, how do I code this? The <laughs> okay. missing art in the hallway? Yes. Yeah. It's brilliant. Brilliant. It is absolute perfection. And after I saw the ending, I rewound it and said, son of a
3: bitch, there it is. (laughs) It was. (laughs) Don't you love that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It
2: it was in your face the whole time and they didn't cheap it. It wasn't a trick. It was there. And I'm just like that chef's kiss.
3: And that's actually underappreciated. Argento owes his career to, of course, the Bird of Crystal Plumage, which people forget is based on a mystery novel. Frederick Brown's Screaming Mimi, oh. uncredited. But like, so to me, the, the world between horror and noir is already very thin. It really is the same kind of weird universe. But people like to sort of categorize it, oh, I'm a horror fan or a noir fan. But I think there's a lot of, you know, uh, 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 giallos. That, that to me is such, it was a mystery genre that became more known as horror-ish, right? I mean, it's it's sort of, you have a killer in a mask with gloves and all the, all these, usually it's a, a mystery to be solved. It's who done it, kind of, who's killing, you know, these. Or innocent psychics and prostitutes and kids, but mm-hmm. but uh, that you know that's that's a really I love that terrain of like where horror bleeds over into noir and vice versa. That that's just the best when you pull it off. It's so hard to pull off. Like you said Nick, it's like yeah, so hard to play fair with your audience and a, a proper mystery. And they do it and it, it works yes. so well.
2: Oh man,
0: yeah. It's interesting you mentioned that, and I hadn't really thought of it until you just brought it up. Which is so I. I was kind of into crime stuff and, and noir stuff a bit before the pod. My into crime and crime fiction was actually The Wire. Oh yeah, which was seeing it and enjoying it and finding all right. Who's I know Dennis Lehane's name. Who's this George Pelicanos guy? And then reading Great. Yeah. some of that stuff, and then so that kind of got me into crime work. So there were a lot of crime authors who were on my radar before we started the pod. But in the process of doing social media for the pod, you know, we follow a lot of horror authors. And then, you know, end up following other authors who we see tweeting about, you know, horror or horror adjacent stuff. And by far, in terms of the next sort of fiction genre that we have in terms of what folks predominantly write, it's absolutely crime and horror. It's absolute. that's definitely the most bleed over,
3: I would think, in terms of the folks we follow on social media. For sure. I mean, I I think I'm I'm, obviously a huge horror fan, but I I guess I somehow am more known as a mystery crime author. And it's fine. I just kind of feel like those things me limiting sometimes. You know, they kind of see you as one thing, but as a writer, you want to explore all kinds of turf. And any chance, I mean, I I try to sneak in horror wherever I can and hope no one notices. You know, <laughs> as far as editors, you know. And I'm always fascinated by okay, where are those boundaries like between? Delaware and, and Maryland. What's the boundary between noir and horror, and how do you mess with that? you the same is that boundary. Weird, right? It's the same boundary. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Delaware is horror and, and Maryland is noir. No, I'm kidding. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that worked out very well in your the mini you did. The last one for John Carpenter Presents, Civilians. Oh, yeah. Which was, yeah, was uh, yeah, such a, a fun blend of a lot of different tones. But horror absolutely being one of them.
1: X is certainly another good vehicle for that, too.
3: Oh God, yeah, that I had so much fun with that book because it was the, the, my my mandate was like be as violent and gross as possible. Like yes, no I'll, I'll do it. Yeah, no problem there. I I've mean, loved
1: X yeah. since the the <laughs> comics, Greatest World stuff debuted with Ghost and all that.
2: So you have my attention.
3: <laughs> that was, was a good book. Oh, cool. Yeah, it was so much fun to uh, play in that sandbox. Yeah, and, and no matter how far I pushed it, it was never like I never had pushback. It was like wow, okay, I'll just keep going. <laughs> you know, no problem. <laughs> that's that's me again it, it wasn't about the gross out it's more the i wasn't actually x was inspired by the wire uh, largely like how can you show a a city you know gone to hell and if you know someone unrestrained by laws unrestrained by you know decency if you want to push back on that what would you do Um, uh, i mean, to the point where like it was very much a fantasy world like the the corrupt cops are like little dogs the like dog-faced humans you know are they monsters what are they and it's never really explained except that, well, this is the world of X. You know, this is where, how he sees them. But, yeah, I, I think there is a lot of um, bleed over between the two genres and almost the, the same genre, sort of, <laughs> in a weird way.
0: Yeah. And you actually, funnily enough, you got to write some more uh, straight up horror in comics, I guess, which is kind of timely with the Werewolf by Night mini you did. Yeah. So, which, yeah, if folks haven't read that following the Disney Plus mini, absolutely go track that one down.
3: Oh, thank you, man. Yeah, that was that was one of my first series I did for Marvel when I was early on, and it's ironic because my very first comic book I ever read as a kid was a Werewolf by Night book and record set. I was like, oh, seven uh-huh. or eight years old. Yeah, so that was to me, it, it gave me a love of horror and comics in the same shot because you listening to this story play out, you're seeing these visuals, of a werewolf like jumping over a fence and cops, you know, blasting away at the werewolf, and you hear this narration like it's so great and cheesy, but as a kid, you're like, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. You know? give him the Oscar. And that sparked, you know, for me, that love of visual art and the love of horror and like what's going to happen. I mean, I really was, I remember being eight or seven, wherever I was, so terrified to turn the page and I got to like you know, the appearance of, of Dracula. I'm like, I can't do it. No, I, I was really, you know, I was, I guess you're like Jake, kind of a wuss when I was younger about, you know, horror and, but it worked on me. It was great. It was, it was just a great shot. And I think you love that kind of stuff. You spend the rest of your life trying to reach that same high.
2: Absolutely. Find that
3: same like. Man, that that's that works so well. They just nailed it. So I'm um, forever in pursuit of like books, movies, we, whatever it takes me there, it is sort of like heroin. You never have the high as good as your first one. Not that I know personally. I'm just saying <laughs> it, I heard. But uh but you know, you can keep chasing that high, and that's why we kind of keep watching these movies over and over again. And if the new one is trying to find that high that made you feel like you're an eight year old kid.
1: It's funny, I was i was thinking about something like that very similar today. Uh, a buddy of mine asked if you should watch the VHS movies and i said you know yes. like i always do yes absolutely but you have to make sure you get to the third one because the most important one is in the third one which is <laughs> bonestorm <laughs> <laughs> and i remember we we've talked about this on on our podcast before but you talk about we watched bonestorm together and obviously it was you know one of my most incredible and fun horror experiences and then we realized that these guys had made a bunch of movies and we watched those movies together and it was like finding like the initial hit was like oh this gets better and that's (laughs) just you know yeah it's just the best and yeah you you chase that and sometimes one of the things that's great about horror is that there's so many creative and interesting people doing creative and interesting things that you can you can find it a lot you can catch it a lot yeah which is partly why we have this podcast which nick makes me watch a bunch of movies that don't give me that feeling (laughs) (laughs) you're welcome.
3: I remember when I first read Clive Barker, I was 15. Uh, I remember this, literally, it was January. I went to my local, like in Northeast Philly, local chain bookstore, and they had a copy of In the Flesh, which I didn't know that at the time but it was like, volume five of the Books of Blood. I bought it because of the cool, creepy cover. Uh, it was like this guy opening his shirt and bees flying out, and he had tongues coming out of his eye sockets. It was like, okay, what is this? And a blurb from Stephen King saying, he's better than I am now. I'm like, sold. All yeah. right, five <laughs> I bucks. But I, I, I went home. I ignored my homework. And I was starting the first story, and I was so, like, that was my first hit. It was, like, not just what he was showing visually, not just the story, but, like, his language. Yeah. It really just flipped a switch in my brain. I called my best friend, like, oh, my God, you got to read this guy. I was, like, I was, like, gushing. Like, you got to read this guy. Buy the copy of this book. I was so excited. And that, to me, was, like, a hit that I was always, again, chasing. You know, and to me, uh, before that, I read Stephen King. Love Stephen King. You Absolutely. know, and it encouraged me to write my own stories. But Barker was different. Barker was, like, showing you, like, okay, if you're really good and work hard, this is what you can achieve. Maybe it's what you shoot for. I mean, I never thought I'd be anywhere near Clive Barker's neighborhood, but like, I know where to shoot for now. I know what I want to kind of try to do at least. And that was a, I mean, I can't, I can't overstate how much of an influence he was on me, not because of the horror and gore. Honestly, it was because of that. Wow. You can marry great writing and great imagination and really take someone somewhere. Interesting. That for a 15 year old was like, he was my, I don't know what, you know, I wasn't a sports guy growing up. I'm not at all. But you're inspired by some kind of heroic figure. That's Mr. Barker for me. (laughs) It was like, okay, this is what you shoot for. Wow. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's fun! On uh, a very special episode of Dwayne Wojcinski. No, it was, it was, it was I, I <laughs> growing up in Philly and not being a
1: sports guy is, is the biggest blessing I've ever heard in my life. Uh, <laughs> a blessing a
3: curse? You kidding me? I, I was always like the I was the outcast. You kidding me? My my entire family's Eagles fans. I'm like the weird weirdo. Like,
1: yeah, but the rest of us are just miserable all of the time. <laughs> I mean, I'm not even from Philadelphia. I like adopted the sports there, and it's just oh, man. the worst thing I've ever done to myself.
3: You actually chose it? Oh, man, dude, why?
1: <laughs> it just
2: happened. He walked in, arms open.
1: <laughs> but yeah, it's funny. This was the first Barker I ever read was this, this short story. The short I story, believe. okay. But I've always been interested in, and I wanna, I'm probably going to get the Imagica? Imagica? Yes. Imagica. Jen has a copy of it, or had a copy of it, that used to be in the apartment, and I'd always look at the cover.
2: It's on my to-do list.
1: And I, I never pulled the trigger and read it, and I think I'll, I'll have to get into it, because I've been a big Stephen King fan. Yeah, you know, for a long time, and I always had this weird kind of distinction in my head, and I'm, I'm it's hard to put it into words what it was. But Stephen King is like bedrock; he's like earth. Yes, and I always had this idea of Barker as like Flesh. water and fire. <laughs> okay, yeah. And I, I mean, just this more liquid, harder to pin down, harder to to understand, kind of more malleable. Whereas, you know, Stephen King is telling stories that are, you know, there's stories like it's not. This sounds like an insult. It's not. There's not a lot of subtlety to Stephen King.
2: Let me see if I can help you with this. So Stephen King is telling you fantastical stories through the eyes of people, right? Whereas Barker is telling you stories of fantastical things from the flesh. (laughs) (laughs) Like in my head, Barker is kind of like
1: Michael Andache, and and I don't even know. Like again, I haven't read it. Like I just always had this idea that his stories and concepts were more poetic. I guess, than Stephen King's more esoteric. And I, I never pulled the trigger, but I, I, I really yeah.
3: should. King's strength to me is like, he writes about people, you know, at the gas station, at the supermarket. I mean, it's yeah. really, and they all work. They're yes. wonderful characters. Yeah. Yes, They're soft to the earth. Or they're just really great. And I always, I always relate easily to like, he grades kids so well kids. He's in the mindset of a child so easily. Parker's different. I never think about the, his, his characters being like, like you and me, they're always very unusual, very yeah. different, hmm. Living in a different sphere than I do, you know, for sure. And that's, that to me is also appealing though. You want to go send a different world. So yeah, it's very different choices that you, know, you make.
2: When I think of Barker, there's one story in particular that always pops in my head. It's the body politic. Where oh, yeah. essentially like one night, this guy kind of catches the fact that his hands are doing weird things to each other. <laughs> and it turns out that the the premise of the story is, is that the human body is nothing more than a republic of various parts working in tandem And his hands (laughs) decide to start a revolution, and so one cuts the other one off and goes, form me an army. It runs off and everything, and all the other hands it comes across like like revolt in the same fashion. It's like holy shit, what is happening here? (laughs) It's amazing.
1: It's it's Stephen King ain't
3: writing that exactly
0: right. You know what's the name of the one Barker story, Under the Hill, or something like that? That is like everyone's favorite. Oh, in the hills, the cities. Yeah. That's the one I keep hearing
3: about. Whereas two towns always go to war with each other, but the twist is that each town kind of does a, a human pyramid and makes a full human being warrior out ah, <laughs> of um, nice. the entire town. And these two giant like people made of people—imagine <laughs> I mean, I'm not kidding. It's like they're Godzilla-sized people made of people. I, mean, oh, it's I like love all, it. And they all work in tandem with straps and, and, and harnesses. They go do battle, and this you know hapless young couple drives into town during this war. It's like, what the fuck is this? (laughs) And the reader's like, what the fuck is this? So it's kind of, I mean, just the sheer imagination. You're right. King would not write that. Almost no one else would write that.
2: I'm so happy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to look that up.
3: (laughs) Oh, yeah. In fact, you know, Jake, if you're you're starting on Barker, the novels are wonderful, but the stories, the books of blood, man, it's like a novel's worth of crazy imagination in like a novella-sized, you know, bite.
1: Well, I own one of those now, so maybe I'll just read the rest of it. Was it this one? The I well, I got it. I I don't don't hate me. I got the Kindle version. <gasps> no but... <that's>
3: respect... <laughs> for shame. No, respect it. <laughs> um,
1: but uh... look, we published a horror book, man. I, this, this digital stuff is not for me. I like I like books that I can have in my house.
3: Uh, same here, obviously. But I wanted
1: to read it quick, and I wasn't gonna have time to get it, so I was like, "All right, fine."
3: Yeah, actually, back to Lord of Illusions. Anything uh, that we've missed so far? I mean or we want to explore
1: i just just to gush one more time about i have to say one of my favorite villains in, in any of the films we've watched recently was was Nyx. i yeah. love Nick's. I love that you, you're introduced like you know you get all of these totems outside and this weird freaky imagery and then you come in and it's basically homer fucking simpson yep <laughs> you know belly hanging out you know dirty t-shirt playing with a monkey going ah oh, well that's what we do to-. and then you know, like the guys arrive and he's like, All right, I'm gonna have a menacing introduction. I'm gonna climb up on this and slowly turn around and like this everything about his performance is, is perfect. I love it. He's yeah. such an yeah. unusual villain for this kind of for any kind of story. It's and then funny. when he comes back and he just seems so so tired of it. Yeah. Like I'm I'm malevolent, but like, oh it's so <laughs> exhausting being malevolent. <laughs> and I, I almost had I was telling Jen about the movie and I mentioned that the villain was named Nix and she started to say Lance and she was saying something else but she said Lance and I almost fell out of my chair because I thought she was going to talk about Lance Nix who was a baseball player and I would have had no (laughs) absolute no idea how she would have ever heard of him because she's not a sports person and it wasn't what he was talking to but for one brief moment it was just great but anyway back to the I forget if it comes up in the film but Nix's first name is William per the script so
3: I wonder, if Nix was a reference to Nixon, Richard Nixon, but that's probably a little stretch. Uh, I don't know. Uh,
1: <laughs>
3: no, well, that that sure. could
1: be. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the fact that he's not in the short story at all was interesting. Yeah,
3: that is interesting. But, I mean, Butterfield is the main baddie. I mean, he's yep. a you know very very different in the story yeah. for sure.
2: What I like a lot about Nix is that you know when you have these characters that are clearly disconnected from reality, which Nix is clearly evolving past himself and past yeah. the need to give a damn about you know. Empathy or other people. You know? <laughs> right, but he right. does care about other people. He cares about and Swan. Typically, when that's portrayed in these films, he's always got this kind of like, you know, they're on drugs almost. Like, oh, I'm yeah. out there, you know. And Nix doesn't do that at all. He just has this very kind of subtle, you know, like,
3: yeah, whatever, you know. Yeah, this is the way it <laughs> is. Sad Sack, the god of couches, man.
2: Yeah,
0: he has such a, like, he's visually so quirky, like, his sweatpants wearing, you know, unkept hair like you said, has such a kind of, you know, laissez-faire, I guess, you know, kind of demeanor to him, just kind of, eh, whatever. And then, but like you mentioned, it with one notable exception as far as an epithetic connection, which is his relationship with Swan. Yep. And and the mm. way that's written is so phenomenal. And like, you know, whole <laughs> where, you know, he's given all yeah. these big cosmic, only Swan is worthy, and, and all these, like, you know, really dark speeches when he's killing the Sculptus and then Swan shows up and he instantly relaxes like, where did I go wrong? And and has that <laughs> whole, I, I love the exchange where he says, you realize at the end I'm going to have to kill you. But until then, it's just that whole idea that, you know, is I, I just want to be together with somebody.
2: Yeah. At the end of the world. I want to be alone in the darkness with you. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And
0: an improvement in the finished film versus the script. So in the script, I, I read the bit where he's plummeting down the chasm, but it's basically when he hits the magma, there's an explosion and the dark energy just kind of ripples up and everything starts to dissemble. And it ends with Harry and Dorothea get in the car and drive away. There's not even like the voiceover. That's another thing I liked where they do the callback to, you know, flesh is a prison and, and magic sets us free yeah. where they have the voiceover. But it, so an improvement I like in the finished film is that they show Nick standing up and Nick is like, no, nah, I'm not done until <laughs> I wreck every last instance and take Swan with me. And, and it has the bit where he's standing up and what's left of Swan levitates and does a a cgi effect which is particularly interesting following the new hellraiser that came out
3: yes yep i thought about that yeah yep. so, interesting yeah
0: I'm, I'm very curious about that i'd like to ask about that sometimes huh
3: yeah it, it, either intentional callback or a big coincidence but it seemed really similar yeah
0: that yeah. was cool so on the, this being who says i was born to murder the world but even that at the the final moments is his physical form doesn't Dissolve doesn't, you know, he doesn't give into oblivion until he takes what's left of Swan with him. And yep. it's, I, I love that so much. I love that dynamic.
3: Yeah. Nix, too, is like, it's funny. I'm more afraid of his followers, his cult members than him. Oh, right? yeah, yeah. Nix is like, Clive Barker loves his sort of civilized, you know, monsters. Like Pinhead, very, very polite guy for, you know, ripping you to shreds. I mean, he really is. A, he's yeah. Yeah. You almost imagine having a, a nice cocktail with, you know, Pinhead. Or or Nix, or you know, or I mean, were residents of, of Midian and Nightbreed. I mean, they're all you know, really kind of fascinating, gentlemanly characters. <laughs> this is odd. The yeah, cultists so freak me out. I mean, I it's that. like some dude in glasses and an Izod shirt and like you know, cutting his uh, hair <laughs> off. I'm like that freaks me out. Like okay, that's weird. <laughs> it's it's
0: <laughs> funny that that reminds me. Sorry, you're mentioning the the cultists being so scary, and it makes you think of like. You know the sequence where they're kneeling on the glass and and all yeah. that, and it gets stuck yeah. in my head. Nick's coming at me like I never asked you to do that. <laughs>
1: you know, Yeah. But it, well, his contempt of them is so palpable. Yeah. Throughout oh, yeah. the whole film. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's oh, like yeah. I
0: tolerated you before, but now it's you know down to business. You know. Uh, scram. These idiots again. <laughs> one other, sorry, one other script note. Butterfield originally had a slightly different death. In the original script, he's battling Harry. Harry knocks Butterfield down, and Butterfield lands face down in the glass. And then Nick's walks over him, Ooh, and another wow. thing of, of of Nick showing casual disregard for everybody yeah. except Swan, where he just strides over him. That's Butterfield's death. is Nick's just walking across him and just pounding yeah. what's left of him into this
3: huh. broken glass. And
1: <laughs> that would
0: be fitting.
3: No, it's all again. It's all interesting characters. I mean, Dorothea, even like you know, what was it like being kidnapped by a cult in your twelve, and then you know, basically shacking up with your savior? <laughs> you know, yeah. It's she was an uh, interesting war yeah. character to me. And she doesn't even like him. No. no. She's just, you know. It's like, I felt like I owed him. Exactly. Yeah. Very That was fascinating. Uh, you wonder about all of you kind of like like daunting. What What's his deal? How do you hook up with, you know, Swan? Uh, Swan's pals. Like, it's funny, the opening sequence where they're coming to the compound to, you know, kick some ass. It's like a Mod Squad episode going yep. wrong. Like, the Mod Squad <laughs> comes in to fight Charles Manson in some, you know, <laughs> desert hideout. I kind of love that. It's all you know. Again, they don't overexplain, which is kind of wonderful. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. yeah, they leave a lot to the imagination, and I, I, yeah, which is fun. Like I don't, I don't necessarily need to know more about the cult or anything. I, I like that, you know, you wonder about them, but you don't have that information because it would just, I don't know. I it just, it's well done. Well,
2: because it, it all makes sense. Like nothing stands out as what the hell is that? You know, the, everything can be a multitude of reasons, but it still fits. And that's what makes all the difference. It's like none of this, you know, it, it's all fantastic and it's all unusual, but it's all the same path, the same river you're going down. It, it all works and flows perfectly.
3: Yeah. Here's a question for you guys. I mean, of the three Clive Barker directed movies, I think Lord of Illusions is the kind of underrated one. No one talks yeah. about it as much as they do Hellraiser for sure or, or Nightbreed. I wonder why. Is it the blend of genres? Is it the, I don't know. For me, it's like super fun and satisfying, but you don't feel about it very much. It's
1: probably the lack of iconic characters.
3: Hmm. I mean, uh, it feels
1: like it feels like you know, Demore is an iconic character, but he's he's an iconic everyman. So it's not, you know, he's not Pinhead, and he's not you know the the monsters and in, in, menagerie. Yeah, you know, yeah. The menagerie. Like none of the visual elements jump out quite that much, and yeah. it's it's not a subtle story, but it's,
2: I don't know, but that would be my guess. While Nyx is obviously very visually gripping at times and a wonderful character, he is a very small portion of the film.
3: (laughs) For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah. It's funny. In my memory, a lot of it's tied up in like going into it was like my one memory of Lord of Illusions before I sat down to watch it. I said Nightbreak prompted me to watch it. But my memory was of when it originally came out and seeing ads for it and it having, remember it having a pretty thoroughly negative reaction then, but mostly because it's folks who like Quantum Leap and it was like Scott Bakula's big theatrical thing. And it was like, oh, that movie stuck. So I had in my head that the movie just had a thoroughly negative reception. And and another reason it so surprised me seeing it. And yeah, I I don't think it's like I would probably rank it personally rank it third of the three Barker movies. But I think it's an incredibly underrated film. And I'm sort of waiting for it to have its Nightbreed-esque rediscovery. Of, oh, that be nice. Like, this is really yeah. better than, you know, folks give it credit for.
3: I, I do wonder about, it's funny about that bringing it up, I do wonder about the grandmother who loves Quantum Leap and sees yeah. the Leap sees stuff back in the movie. Oh my God, what is this? You know, <laughs> they're <all laughs> horrified by what they're seeing. And I do, want, yeah, I, I do wonder that, that that may have not helped, you know, that expectation of, wow, what is this guy who I love? Although they should have had a scene at one point where Harry Demore sort of shakes his head and is like, Oh boy, <laughs> <laughs> Sam Beckett is now on the. You know. <laughs> it's
0: funny because my reaction to it now is kind of the inverse of that. Because so you know back then it would have been quantum leap. You know folks who love quantum leap being like, oh, I did this weird you know horror film. Uh, me, I spent the early days of the pandemic. I, my roommate's a big Star Trek fan, so we watched all of Star Trek. So I watched all four seasons of Enterprise. So now when I see Scott Bakula, I remember those first two seasons of Enterprise. This motherfucker. And I get that (laughs) goddamn opening theme song stuck in my head. And so it's, it's reverse. (laughs) It's like I get Enterprise flashbacks. It wasn't that bad, but
3: and it's also this is the dawn of Santa Jensen's career, right? Yeah. That, after that, it was she's a, yeah. a Bond girl, and then she was, you know, in the X Men movies. I mean, that, this is a good discovery on Clive part. TNG too.
0: Finally enough, TNG. She was in the the like season six oh, episode. Oh, uh, I forget the character's funny. name, but she's the character who's like her entire personality is she's there to like, seduce and cater wow. to the whims of whoever her designated mate is. Something like that. It was yeah. like a season six episode, something like that. I thought of it because there's Vincent Chiavelli who's in it as. And who is obviously he's in the episode, the Arsenal Freedom from season one. He's very memorable as the peddler there. Interestingly enough, looking him up. I mean, obviously his when I see him, I think of Amadeus, but he's been in a bunch of I always remember him in the opening scene of Amadeus. All right, if you don't open this door, we're going to eat everything. But I didn't realize he was the voice of Zatara in Batman, the animated series the year before
3: this. So oh, he wow. actually
0: played magicians in back-to-back years. Nice. And and of all magicians, played a comic book one. So I was like, holy shit.
3: Interesting.
1: Wow. This was her second movie. Oh, what was first? Her first one was something called Fathers and Sons, hmm. which is a Jeff Goldblum, Rory Cochran, and Famke Janssen film, which I'm going to have to Interesting. now watch. Yeah. Wow. Directed by, uh, it's probably Mones, but M-O-N-E-S, Paul Mones.
3: I mean, legend has that Clive Barker, you know, was going through casting photos and saw her photo and was like, this, this is Dorothea. A great leap of faith, you know, and smart choice. But how do you do that? How do you know that? You know, it's it's so hard to do.
1: You know, it's funny. The reason I like her so much is mostly rounders.
4: No, no. She's got a
1: bit part in rounders, but I've always just kind of liked the way she kind of handled that role in it. I thought it was cool, and I've just been a fan of hers ever since. Yeah. But now I want to see this Fathers and Sons movie. I haven't even heard of this one. Wow. Yeah. The description is a father or widder and a teenage son live in a seaside town with a serial killer. The son starts hanging out with girls and drug dealers. Hmm. I think that was Rory Cochran's first film.
0: It's funny. While you're sitting there thinking that, looking at Fonka Johnson's, it just occurred to me one of the other things that Scott Bakula had in terms of this period of time was, I uh, it was a year after this was Color of Night. So, oh. which would have been another, like, he doesn't have a massive role in that, but he is a pretty notable one. And funny enough, Kevin O'Connor's in that too. But, ah, so, another film that had had a less than positive reception at the time of its release. Yeah.
3: Yeah, it's funny. Is, yeah, I believe really, this came out late August in '95. It's funny. I remember when I saw this, I was at a uh, craft beer festival in Northeast Philly. I was there with 10 beer tickets. My buddy's going to show up. My buddy blew me off. So, I'm like, oh, okay, no. I, I, I nursed a beer, I gave my tickets away. I decided in true Charlie Brown fashion, I'm going to walk home, screw it. So it's like miles. (laughs) I'm walking miles home. And halfway between my house and this beer festival was a movie theater, the AMC Orleans 8, my beloved theater growing up in in Northeast Philly. And I happened to walk by it 10 minutes before the next showing of of Lord of Illusions. I'm like, I'm going to totally check this out. This is awesome. My buzz is wearing off. I'm watching Clive Barker right now. It was it was great. It was honestly the best movie experience because I just That's lovely. loved the damn thing. It washed over me. I walked home in a state of euphoria, like yeah, oh, this is perfect. awesome. And I was always mystified by why no one else was as excited as I was about the movie. Like oh yeah, that was weird. Like no, this is great. You know I'm a weirdo. So aren't we all? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Very <good> yeah.
0: <laughs> no, that's that's an amazing first seeing viewing experience for it, and this is Dwayne. We've kept you for a while. This has been so much fun chatting with you. <laughs> Thank, Thank you so you much.
3: Thank so you. It was a blast, guys. Thank you so much. So awesome nerding out with you. So
0: I'll, I'll mention at the top one thing. I mentioned at the top too. I highly recommend folks check out Civilians, the miniseries you did for John Carpenter's Tales of Science Fiction. I'm sure Nick will be doing at some point in in the bookends for this episode. We'll get the John Carpenter connection. I've got one, Dwayne. <laughs> John Carpenter has a postscript for this.
3: So. Not to brag, I'm actually going to be seeing John Carpenter this a few days from now. We're doing a, a signing for the next anthology, uh, his tales for Halloween Night anthology. It's, it's the eighth edition. Is it
0: the uh, yeah? There's the eighth one out. Yeah, I, I have it coming. I haven't gotten it yet.
3: So they have a group signing. A shop called Golden Apple Comics in Hollywood. That every year around Halloween, we do a group signing. I mean, everyone's there to see John and Sandy King Carpenter. And they have a bunch of us other, you know, idiots uh, also yes. signing who are in the book. But it's just so much fun seeing everyone who just loves and adores Carpenter movies and Carpenter fans coming out. It's a great time. So awesome. I'll be seeing JC, as I call him. I don't call him that.
1: No. <laughs> you know, I, I saw a video of him the other day. It was at a convention or something. and Somebody asked a question. He said, you know, the, the escape from New York was great. What happened with the escape from L.A.? And he just leans out, puts his finger up and goes, fuck you.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and I, I he, he became my new hero with that.
3: It's the best response. Seriously. You know, it's he's it's a, again, he doesn't pull punches. He's a straight shooter. Mm-hmm. He's wonderful. Yeah, he's I, I've been lucky enough to get to know him a little bit over the years. This is great. Oh, he's not
2: one to suffer fools. So we're, we're big <laughs> no, fans here. No, at the no,
3: pod. no, no, yeah. Huge, huge fan, obviously.
0: No, thank you for doing so. This episode will be out. Probably in about mid-November, and you'll be having your book drive underway at that point. Oh, yeah. Can I plug
3: that? You Absolutely.
0: Yeah, I wanted to bring it up.
3: I uh, Thank you for that. I, I, a slight bummer, and then I'll uplift us. Don't worry. Uh, but the bummer is, you know, four years ago this month, uh, we lost our daughter, uh, Evie, to leukemia. And that was just, you know, just awful. But some friends, actually, at Dark Delicacies Bookstore, a horror bookstore in Burbank, started a, a book drive just to do something, you know, and gather books. And while Evie was in treatment, there was a great program at Children's Hospital L.A., called uh, literally healing and they collect books. So every kid in the, the ward on all, all the floors get a, a new book for free. They can keep this wow. thing is you know, the best thing ever. It's like just an, an escape hatch, you know? Yeah. So we lost Evie. we decided, okay, this book drive happened. We want to make this kind of a mission. So we, my wife and I founded as a foundation called, you know, team Evie to, um, you know, gather these books every year. And it's every year we gather more and more. And last year we even gathered like 5,000 books that go right to the wow. hospital. And to me, it's like building, you know, future readers, which is awesome. Yeah, like, absolutely. this is like, okay, here's your gateway drugs to all kinds of worlds. And I kind of love that. So uh, I, I know my daughter was a big reader, so she was a huge nerd, like her father before her. So, so um, yeah, if anyone yeah, feels moved to uh, check it out, it's a uh, team Evie, T-E-M-E-V-I-E foundation.com. Uh, we work with three independent bookstores and, you know, as Amazon links, it's pretty easy to name a book, you know, five, 10 bucks and make a big difference in a kid's life. So. I'd be really great grateful. Are they
1: all kids' books?
3: You know, actually, all, all kinds of books. I mean, they're for adults too.
1: Maybe we can send a few copies of the scary stuff out.
3: Please, yeah. I mean, honestly, it's meant for you know, parents who are there too, you know, and, and as kids as well, and you know, all, all kinds of kids. I mean, they're teenagers. I mean, a lot of the uh, we push for adult books, quote adult books. So, I mean, fifteen year olds read, you know, I'm yeah. reading Stephen King and Clive Barker. Yeah, so,
4: absolutely.
3: I, I don't presume that you know a kid who's that age wants to read, you know, Harry Potter or something you know. So. Yeah, all books are good. There are no such thing as a bad book. So thank you so much for letting, letting me plug that. It's, oh, a, it's, it's you know very important to me and my family. So I appreciate you contributing.
1: We'll definitely push that on our social media as well.
3: I might us out completely. On <laughs>
0: <laughs> Not re- no, no, thank you so much for mentioning. And again, thank you just so much for spending time with us today. We, yeah, thank we you really very really much for coming it. on. It's been Truly great. had
3: a blast. Thank you, guys. This is so much fun. Thank you.
1: Can't wait to have you back.
3: Yeah, please. Anytime. I'd love it. Uh, I, I just want to be around, I can't wait to listen to uh, the Hellraiser podcast someday with uh, with Jake there, just yeah. to see what it does to him, I,
1: I, I, I'm just... It's gonna ruin me completely, I can feel it
3: Boy oh boy, <laughs> <laughs> you have no idea what you're in for, trust uh, me. What a ride
2: <laughs> Can't wait. We have such sights to show, sights you. To show. <laughs> <laughs>
3: And scene Perfect <laughs> Once
0: again, I cannot thank Dwayne enough for coming on to chat with us. Oh my god, that was so much fun. Dude, oh
1: my god. Ah, ah. That was great. <laughs> I really enjoyed that. And it, it's a fun movie to talk about, too.
2: There's so many levels and layers and depths. It's it's Oh, I love this movie.
1: And hey, all you, all you monsters listening to the podcast, make sure you send a book when we uh, when we get that address out there to you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Like Dwayne mentioned the link, we're going to tweet about it. but It's a good cause. Absolutely go contribute to that. And also support Dwayne's work. Um, that Civilian's Mini he did is terrific. Since we're talking Vember, Dwayne has a bunch of crime novels, obviously. Uh, the one I've got sitting next to me is Revolver. But the one I'll mention in particular is, if you like crime stuff, I highly recommend his comic mini Breakneck. If you like kind of gonzo, comedy-intensive crime miniseries, it's bonkers and it is an absolute blast and has one of the best first pages of any comic I've ever read. So, yeah, the mini is called Breakneck. So please go check out Dwayne's work. Check out Bloodshot number 12. I wasn't kidding. That's one of my favorite. Bloodshot eats a cow. It's great. <laughs> There's context for that. It's it, for seeing the movie. He needs to regenerate. If he loses parts of himself. He can regenerate it. He just needs protein as a base and ends up he's, he's in front of a bunch of cows when he's in desperate need of protein. So
2: <laughs>
0: Yeah. What a fun conversation. What a movie this is.
2: Yeah, highly recommended to anyone. I, I, anytime this comes up, I'm like everyone has to watch this. As
1: I mentioned in the beginning, I was I I went into this with my typical bad attitude, and I was just I just really enjoyed the film. It's it's something I'll I'll watch again. I'm glad on my own. I gotta I gotta try and talk my brother into watching it now, which is always a ulcer inducing experience. But you know maybe
2: because it's old, he'll do it. See you telling him to watch it, it's not going to work. Tell him I said he should watch it and see what happens.
1: Yeah yeah yeah. yeah. <laughs> He would only do that if it was something
2: he knew I didn't like and wanted to be mean somehow. <laughs> well, you got to You got to ramp this up, then. This is your acting gig. This is your role of a lifetime.
1: <laughs> Although I did get him to watch the Mortuary Collection. So, you know, that only took uh, a long time of badgering him and he enjoyed it. So our Halloween movie from last year. Oh. And you should listen to that episode because it's got the favorite joke I ever made on this podcast. And I see that left no impression on Eric. Whatsoever. Well, no, I remember the so intro. I'm now. trying to think. I'm what just going to sign off. They can finish this shit uh, without me. Now my heart is broken.
0: <laughs> Aside from everything that went into editing the the intro to that, if you're talking about something after that, it's a blur. Because all I can hear is everyone out of key going, "Here we are!" and singing the goddamn <laughs> Islanded theme as I
1: writhe in my seat at everyone being off key. Oh, I forgot I wrote that intro to it. I love that. Might be my favorite episode of our podcast. Yeah, no, I'm not going to give the joke away. Go listen to that episode. It was good. (laughs) Maybe you two should, too, because it was my best joke. Everything has been downhill since then, so (laughs) surely you've noticed that. (laughs) But yeah, I enjoyed this movie. It was fun to actually read some Clyde Barker for the first time. I I will probably jump in and grab a novel and go from there and see where it takes me. Excellent. We'll see. And I, I very much look forward to us doing Hellraiser sometime. I'm sure we'll put it in a poll and some other shit will win and I'll complain about it forever. But... <laughs> Maybe that's how we get to do Halloween is we put them both in the same poll and I really want Hellraiser, so we'll get Halloween. <laughs> I, I will say this. Going into spooky season, I, I didn't really expect the two or three hardest laughs I had in any films to come from Lord of Illusions and then Halloween ends. But here we are. And I, it probably says more about me than anything else. There are a
2: lot of them in Halloween Ends. Oh, there's
1: there's two in Halloween Ends where I just, I rewound it, could not stop laughing.
2: I'm watching it this weekend. Don't spoil it.
1: I'm not going spoil it. You'll, you'll know them when you see them. Oh, yeah. It's funny. Those are, we're talking about
0: franchises. It's like, I am itching. I've said before, and I'm not kidding. I'd love to do anything on this pod. Previously, franchise wise, when we did a recent episode, I'd said that I really wanted to do Children of Corn because there's 11 of them fuckers and I haven't seen any of them. Yep. But a couple episodes later, now we have a new Hellraiser and a new Halloween Ends. And I'm kind of dying to do both those franchises because I have a lot to say about their most recent installments in both cases.
2: Hellraiser is so good. Hellraiser. I really. Well, we'll talk about that some other day.
1: We could always work our way backwards on those franchises. We could do. The most recent trilogy and then the most recent Hellraiser and then later on do the original Boy would that be funny to do with Halloween Oh god that would give Nick an aneurysm (laughs) Oh to try and do that out of order Oh man I'm sorry Nick I didn't I didn't even think that would be like playing D&D and going in a dungeon not exploring every room
2: There's treasure in the god damn it Jake (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of, of Nick's favorite bits on the pod Nick do you want to do the production rundown Let's run through this so, all right, as you are well acquainted by now, we've been talking about Lord of Illusions from 1995, which was written and directed by Clive Barker, who also wrote and directed uh, Nightbreed, Hellraiser, and Salome and the Forbidden. Edited by Alan Baumgarten, who also brought us Venom, The Cloverfield <laughs> Paradox, Zombieland, The Adventures of Elmo and Grouchland, Ding. And, <laughs> and The Lawnmower Man. Which you could probably feel to some degree in this. <laughs> you, you left out we
0: got Adventures of Elmo and Grouchland, which is 90% of what I cared about. The other ten was I uh, just wanted to mention real quick that he was an assistant editor on Jumping Jack Flash and Interspace. Oh, nice! By the time this comes out, Jumping Jack Flash will have probably come up on our Halloween episode.
2: As much as I love both of those movies very, very much, the adventures of Elmo and Grouchland is probably the one I've seen the most. <laughs> <laughs> What about Follow That Bird, the big bird <laughs> Oh, I love Follow That Bird, but that, that's not even my kids. That's just me. Anyway. <laughs> Cinematography by Ron Schmidt, who's also worked on The Walking Dead, The Mist, two episodes of The Red Shoe Diaries, Beastmaster 2. Which two? Uh, I I—I got to leave some mystery for the folks at home. <laughs> he also worked on Braindead and Ghoulies Go to College. Yep. Eric, 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 do, mm-hmm. do, is, is it is it our noble quest and obligation to make Jake watch the Ghoulies franchise? I've seen the first one. I, I, I think I think we gotta I think we gotta I think we gotta I think we, gotta. Okay. I think we
0: don't got it. We got all the
1: franchises we gotta we were just fucking talking about franchises we gotta do. And you wanna bring ghoulies into the mix? <laughs> well wait a minute.
0: Jake really wants to do the movie Spookies. Spookies! But he keeps calling it creepies. So if he decides he really wants to do ghoulies, is he gonna
2: call it munchies?
4: <laughs>
2: no, it's the other one. If we did an episode that was spookies, creepies, ghoulies, munchies. <laughs> The quadruple E's. i think we gotta yes I think, I think we gotta don't we i think i think it's
1: a moral obligation at this point jared just watched uh creepies for the first time and he had some thoughts creepies or spooky no, okay. I, don't know, spookies. Which I don't know i still the fucking house i grew up in that'd you be, spookies. Spookies. That'd be all right spookies god damn it if we do that episode You realize I'm not going to get a single word right. I'm not even going to get your names right by the end of that. I'm going to be so confused. Be calling you Bob and Larry.
2: (laughs) So, music was by Simon Boswell, who also did music for Hardware, Shallow Grave, The ABCs of Death, Demons Two and Three, and Phenomenon.
1: Also, Stage Fright for slasher fans out there. Yeah, Stage Fright. Oh yeah, one of them Phenomagons. Does anybody? Nobody know if somebody out there gets that joke? Please write in. I just wanted to be happy; it'd make me happy. But man, Shallow Grave—what a good fucking movie that was, huh? Have you not seen that, Eric? No, I've seen it. Oh, okay. You didn't react at all. Yeah, it's good. It's been a while. But... Oh, I ericated it. Damn it! Now we going to do Shallow no, Grave. I, like it. I just
4: don't remember that one.
2: <laughs> so I really loved all the set pieces and the and all the locations and everything they did. So I made sure to include here a production design. By Steve Hardy, who's also worked on uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer series, Warlock the Armageddon, yeah. Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth, yeah. Waxworks 2, Lost in Time, and Nightbreed. And also did
0: was a makeup technician on a few things, but in, but in particular, Waxwork and Hellraiser 2. Mm-hmm. So I guess he started in makeup and then kind of transitioned into full production design.
2: For special makeup effects, this film included all three, Robert Kurtzman... Greg Nicotero, and Howard Berger. NBFX. All working for KNB. Who, all three working together, have worked on 2013's Texas Chainsaw, 13 Ghosts, From Dusk Till Dawn, 1, 2, and 3, The Faculty, Wishmaster, Scream, New Nightmare, The People Under the Stairs, Misery, Tales from the Dark Side, Evil Dead 2, Intruder, and as a hat trick to our John Carpenter connection, Hey. Worked on, Ghosts of Mars, John Carpenter's Vampires, and In the Mouth of Madness. I love these men. I'm partial to anybody who
1: worked on Ghosts of Mars. I say,
0: way to bring in the, the Ghosts of Mars for Jay. <laughs> I, I thought
1: I'd rope him in there.
0: <laughs> I will throw in one other makeup effects person aside from K and B. He's, I think, on this film. He's just credited as additional makeup effects, which is Gary Tunnicliffe, whose name I saw in the credits. And the reason I will point him out was. I didn't write down all his credits. I think he worked on most of the Hellraisers, but specifically, he's the person who wrote and directed the last direct-to-video Hellraiser before the recent reboot that David Bruckner did. I think it was Judgment. I get it. And Revelation's mixed up. I'm pretty sure
2: Judgment was the last one. I think Judgment is the only one I haven't seen yet. Revelation
0: is the one that's like 25% found footage and everyone in the house and judgment is the the one. Well, I won't spoil them for JB. Yeah, judgment's the one that kind of overhauls
2: the hierarchy of, of the Cenobites a bit. But yeah,
0: lots to talk about with that franchise.
2: <laughs>
0: uh, I will throw it. Is that everyone you had as far as crew?
2: You got, I got uh, as far as crew goes. Yes. Though so I do have produced and distributed real quick. Okay. So it's produced by Seraphim Films, uh, who also worked on Nightbreed, Hellraiser Two, and Hellraiser Resurrection, and distributed by MGM United Artists, who also did Stargate, A Fish Called Wanda, and Coma. Oh, nice. Yeah, Fish called Wanda. One. one of my er-movies, man.
0: I just had one other person to toss in, which was the costume designer uh, Luke. Apologies for pronunciation. I believe it's Reichel. R-E-I-C-H-L-E. The reason I'm tossing him out there, he's costume designer for stuff. Uh, Periscope, The Glimmer Man, Dominion, uh, both Exorcist The Beginning and Dominion, but he, he probably only did one of those, and since they just did some reshoots, he got credited for both. Uh, mentioning it, again, we're both tossing in stuff for Jake, but this one's also for me. He was the costume supervisor for Digstown so oh. <laughs> welcome to digstown scared me scare you scared you
2: <laughs> it is worth uh, mentioning that daniel von Bargen and famka jensen have worked in other horror film together uh the faculty
1: yep yeah the faculty one of my 10 horror movies to know me for the current twitter trend did you do that yeah in fact uh, i had mortuary collection on there and the director Liked it. He was one of the t- only two people who liked that tweet. So, you know, <laughs> that was fun. That made me feel validated.
0: Well, I'll, I'll find it and I'll like it. So that'll be three.
1: Uh, now it doesn't count. <laughs> you can do it
0: on your own. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's funny. In terms of seeing people and getting excited that they were in it, a random one I had, and it, it didn't click in my head any of the previous times I saw Lord of Illusions, but it did this time. And I checked INDB and confirmed it, which was Sheila Tauze, who plays Jennifer Desiderio. All these times I've seen it and, and it didn't click, and I watched it this time and said, Wait a minute. The end of Ravenous. That's fucking Martha. Ah, and that's Martha nice. from Ravenous. Oh, I love Ravenous <laughs> so much. I do too. I was so thinking about pushing to do it for Thanksgiving.
1: Oh, <laughs> perfect for Thanksgiving. <laughs> I still haven't seen
2: it, so I do 2023, 2023, baby. 2023, Thanksgiving. It's happening.
1: We'll do another November,
0: probably Angel Heart. Although, maybe we'll do keep the Barker thing going to do Underworld Transmutations. Jake will not like that one as much as Lord of Illusions. No. But it is interesting. I, I'll just mention again, like I said, the movie is kind of tricky to track down at them, at least as of this recording. But if you find it and you are a Barker fan, it is kind of an interesting watch. Yes. Because you can see elements that were later repurposed into other stuff. Like there's, there's a subplot of it that very much feels like, it was repurposed into Nightbreed. And yep. then there's this very noir element, which is kind of repurposed into the Harry Demore stuff. So it's, it's interesting in that respect. Barker, like Dwayne mentioned, Barker is not a fan, but it is kind of an interesting watch if you're a completist.
1: So before we go, I just want to toss this out there as a challenge to our, our listeners out there. If any of you are good at video editing, I would love to see a cut of this with all of Nick's lines dubbed over with his lines from Super Troopers. And possibly the faculty. You know, this is the test.
4: <laughs> like I said, I like you.
1: Or she wasn't my cousin. Like, who doesn't <laughs> to say? Because like, I kept thinking about it in his scenes. I would hear those lines in my head. And I'm like, oh, man, that would be funny as hell. Maybe just to me. But it seems worth doing if we have a listener out there who's feeling, like, you know, adventurous. Anyway, just throwing that out there as a challenge. It's funny you mentioned challenges because I'll just say real quick,
0: as we're getting towards wrapping up that I managed to get through this entire discussion of Lord of Illusions without going on a long tangent about all these people coming out of the woodwork in Hellraiser talking about all of a sudden gay subtext being injected into Clive Barker's work. Oh my God. As if it
1: never happened before.
0: It's in all of it. it.
1: (laughs) Did they not watch this movie? Because... What do you think Nightbreed is?
0: (laughs) Well, then there's so now the new Hellraiser is out and, you know, again, there's a surge of folks who are like uh, people putting woke politics into Clive Barker. It's like Clive Barker, Clive, Clive, Clive Barker, because if I Google Clive Barker interviews for Lord of Illusions, which I did, one of the top ones I found was an interview he did for QueerRadio.org, or I guess it was just queer radio at the time. It was a radio program, I guess, from uh, Australia, and it's noted in there in this article. Clive had asked his publicists to particularly seek out LGBT media for him to chat with. This is in 1995. Mm-hmm. Not only is Clive an openly gay man, but he also includes in this film some quite apparent queer sensibility which yep. he wanted people to notice. Absolutely. You can't miss it in this
1: movie. It's so.
2: Do you Sorry, think he I'm was not...
1: wearing those short shorts because he was fucking hot out? Nope. The biggest romance in this is between Swan and Nix.
2: Yep.
0: Yeah. It, the very next line of this article bit is "Lord of Illusions" features the quote very sexy Scott Bakula in the lead role as darkly brooding detective Harry Damore. But yeah, the, the whole relationship between Swan and Nix, which is one of my absolute favorite parts of the film, but yeah, it's not subtle. It's,
1: nope. So, uh, sorry. Yeah, that's you. You really got to be willfully ignorant to not catch some of this stuff because it's not like
2: it's not it, subtle. Oh my God. like, and I love. I love people who are like how could you make pinhead a woman? I'm like, read the book motherfucker.
0: (laughs) (laughs) She always
2: was.
0: (laughs) (sighs) Well, Hey, now we've actually done a Clive Barker movie on the podcast. Kind of funny that we, we ended up doing his last directorial effort, but yeah, I'm, I'm so delighted. Like I said, we've been talking about doing this since year one and I've really been looking forward to doing this. I I don't think I mentioned when we chatted with Dwayne, that I think of, of his three films, I probably like this the least. But I do like it. I think it's uneven, more so in the theatrical cut. The director's cut evens things out a bit. Yes. But just kind of like we talked about, it's visually engaging. It pretty quickly grabs your attention, sustains interest throughout. There's a lot of fun performances. There's fun set pieces. If you are a noir fan, seeing these tropes play out in a horror context is interesting. And I think Barker put it well on the commentary for the movie. During the course of the commentary, he's talking about the reception, and Barker said, you know, the way I look at it with this movie is, I think I got 50 things right and about 30 things wrong. And when you think about it, that's a pretty good batting average overall. And I think that's that's about right. Hard to and argue. He's like, 50 things right? Th- that's, yeah, that's fair. I might say he did more right,
1: but yeah. I'd say he got more right. I would agree. Than, 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 yeah. yeah. There's a
0: ton of merit in this film, and hopefully at some point, like I said, it'll hopefully get some more attention i think probably a little bit i mean there's the Shaw factory blue which has the the director's cut which i think is out of print now but yeah it's if if you haven't seen the director's cut like we said track it down if you can because it is yeah. notably better just for you know the bar scene with wilder well you do now
2: love it it is that's a brilliant scene and i just yeah the movie is visually stunning it grips you doesn't let you go i love what they do with it and it all flows, and it's a beautiful world that I wish I had so much more of.
1: I just thought it was cool. I, it, it hit a lot of my buttons. I, I enjoyed the way it flows. I enjoyed all the performances. You know, kid around about liking it just because the actor's in it, but I thought everybody did a good job. I enjoyed the story, and I, I genuinely... It's going to be hard to top Nick's as one of my favorite horror villains for a long time. I yep. think he just was so different and unique, even though he's you know he's only he bookends the movie. I just...
4: I think he's in love. <laughs> I just, I,
1: I loved. I, I really, really enjoyed this. This is something I will revisit on my own. Yay! I, I can't necessarily say that about everything we do, but this one is. I, it really clicked with me. Excellent.
0: Oh, that's fabulous! I'm, I'm, success. I'm very happy you like it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, maybe next we'll have to do Midnight Meat train. <laughs> train. I have always wanted to see it. I know it. you and do. There's, there's elements of it. I think. Well, with Vinnie Jones, that, would, that we have another insurance policy in that one because Vinnie Jones is in it.
1: I also, I know, I know the twist in it, and I've been fascinated about that, and I just haven't ever kind of pulled the trigger to watch it. So I'm, I'm down anytime.
0: Yeah. Again, if you're a Clyde Barker fan and you haven't heard his commentary on that, please track it down. Also, Ruhe Katamura, the director, is on it, and he's we'll talk about this more when I do it, but I saw him speak at a convention before Midnight Meat Train came out. And he was so, his love for Barker's material is so sincere. Like when he talked about the fact that he was about to go into production on Midnight Meat Train, he visibly lit up. So he was very passionate about it. So it's a fun commentary. Go track it down. We'll talk more about that when we do it because I do want to do it. But yeah, I'm so glad we talked about this film. I'm so glad everybody liked it. And best of all, holy shit, that was a blast talking to Dwayne. Absolutely. I can't
1: thank him enough. Cannot
0: thank him enough for coming on here. That was so wonderful and can't wait to have him back on. In the meantime, we hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode. If you did, you want to leave us a review wherever you get your pods, whatever your preferred pod platform is. That's great.
2: We appreciate it.
0: You can follow us on social media. We're at Scary Stuff Pod on Twitter and Letterboxd. We are at Scary Stuff Podcast on Instagram, or we've got a website, scarystuffpodcast.com.
2: Love to see you online.
1: Definitely follow us on Twitter, at least. Eric is way less lazy about it than I am with the Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm pretty lazy. <laughs> it's We're basically 90%
0: retweets in a sporadic GIF. Ha <laughs> 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 so but i do we retweet a lot of stuff because it, it, I, I like sharing that stuff and i do think you know there's a lot of stuff i've stumbled on in doing this podcast i have spent so much money since we started this podcast on books and comics and movies and stuff but it's there's so much out there so like if like. we're
1: gonna have a platform we gotta use it to boost the stuff we love yeah, yeah. exactly if yeah you love listening to, to us you're gonna love what we repost so you know it's just come along for the ride and if you hate listening to us and you do it at, you know, like a spite listen, fucking buy that shit anyway. They deserve it. Yeah. Don't hold it against our previous podcast for our bolts <laughs> yeah. They're fabulous. Us were. And Hey, look, if you spite listen to us, I appreciate you almost even more because that that is a Herculean. I'm out of spite. We, we put out long ass episodes <laughs> like that's an endeavor. That's impressive. We climb that mountain, my good friend. <laughs>
0: Well, to our would-be nemesis who's listening, we appreciate the listen. (laughs) And just, again, sincerely, thank everyone for listening. We really appreciate the support. We hope you enjoyed the episode. We will be back with another episode soon. And in the meantime, this is Eric signing off saying thanks again.
2: This is Nick saying, The grave is lonely, but living is worse. This is Jake eating quarters. Buggies.